call it. Call it, yes. For what? Just call it. Welcome to episode 61 of Call It Friend, or the podcast where two friends watch a film decided by the flip of a coin. This week, myself, Andy J. Ritchie, and my co-host, Donna Katirnan, watched the 1999 sci-fi adventure comedy, Galaxy Quest. As always, the podcast contains spoilers for the film right from the start. Check out JustWatch.com for streaming and rental options in your region. You can find us on Instagram at Podcast. Drop us a line there with any feedback or recommendations. Peace. Well, it's 2022. We have successfully made it through another year of the Call of Friendo podcast because we started back in 2020. Remember that? Yeah, late summer, I believe. That's right. And uh, the original format of the show involved one person picking a film. Well, no, each person. We both picked films. Mm -hmm. Then just randomly, whatever we wanted, stuff that we hadn't seen before, just to try and fill in the blanks in our film watching history. And then we would put our films up against each other, <laughs> rubbed right up, right up against each other. Mm. Uh, frottage, is that what that's called? And then, <laughs> good God! <laughs> and then, and then we'd toss a coin, and we'd watch the winner's film, and then the loser got to pick a film to go along with that. And yeah. that was a good system, right? It was. And then, when looking for our top fives, well, we decided that we're going to go back to that system. Yes, because sometimes just the double bill format just really, really worked. Uh, and you had a it great did. week of watching movies. And uh, I mean, ultimately, this is uh, for us to watch movies, you know? That's the, yeah. <laughs> that's the whole raison d'etre. Uh, so more enjoyable week, like uh, like my most enjoyable week here, I don't think contains either of my top five films of the year. But uh, yeah, it was a great week for it. So we're going to be moving back to that. However, there will be a small change. One week, we're going to be talking about two films based on the coin toss. And then the next week after that, we'll be talking about a new release or any film that someone recommends. We got a recommendation a while back, I remember, for a film called The Beast or something. I need to go back into the archives to have a look at that. It's oh, yeah, a that Kevin guy Reynolds directed film. That guy was very passionate about that. Yeah, a guy who messaged us, he messaged the call at Call a Friend on Instagram telling us to watch this uh, Kevin Reynolds film, which I still haven't done, even though I told him, yeah, 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 sure, we'll watch it. <laughs> I haven't done it. So we should be, I'll, I might bring that to the table at some point soon, but if anyone has any recommendations, if you'd like us to talk about any film in particular, I don't know what we're going to talk about next time because next week is going to be a double bill, and then the week after that is going to be a new release or any recommendation listener recommendation hmm. we're considering matrix four that's a possibility however i would perhaps rather uh chop my cock off <laughs> than watch that so. i mean it is a problem it well yeah i mean i haven't even heard many of the reviews but the second i heard it was coming out it ju it felt like um it felt like the only reason that they would do it was kind of Somebody asking them really nicely. One thing I've heard about the film is that there's a fourth wall breaking meta scene where it's basically commenting that the reason that they made the film was because someone else would have made it. Like Warner would have just made it without them. I think it was Warner Brothers. Huh. Okay, fair enough. So, <laughs> that also fills me with dread. Have you seen and any of the um, other Wachowski films besides The Matrixes? 
Uh, I watched Bound a million years ago. Oh, yeah, that was good. I liked uh, that. Yeah, it was fine. Uh, I still haven't watched Cloud Atlas. Not right. I'm, I may well bring that to the table at some point. You haven't seen Cloud Atlas either, huh? No, I read the book, um, and I don't know. So it wasn't that I was like, you know, all the race and gender changing. I mean, f- fair play to them for all of that kind of stuff. I just remember a promo image of like uh, Hugh Grant as some weird post-apocalyptic <laughs> tribesman, <guy> <laughs> yeah. and I was just thinking, I don't know. Oh about yeah, no, this. yeah, it was it was a- it was Asian Jim Sturgis, and yeah, like tribal Hugh Grant. Um, I mean, That's fair play for out. casting against type. I've not seen Speed Racer. Have you seen Speed Racer? Me neither. Yeah. No, I haven't seen Speed Racer. What's the other one? The kind of Andromeda thing, blah, blah, blah. Ju- Jupiter Rising or something. Oh, that yeah. Jupiter Ascending. Well. Jupiter I haven't seen Ascending. That. Didn't yeah. they have something to do with V for Vendetta, which was actually pretty good? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was James McTeague, I think he's called, but the Wachowskis produced it. They also were involved in that show what's it called sensei oh yeah i i watched one episode of that and couldn't hack it yeah, not for me it's not for me i mean it's we're not, not really me. talking ourselves into matrix resurrections here <laughs> so well is that what it's called if anyone has any other recommendations there i'm sure there'll be something else it's out what was the one you were one you were suggesting power of the power the, of the dog yeah the new jane campion film power of the dog campion campion campiones yeah that's uh would be worth watching certainly for old bumber snatch uh, yeah, Bimble Bum Bumbersnatch. He's actually, he appeared in one of my been watching this week. Oh, Osama been watching. Uh, yes. <laughs> what have, what have, what have you been, Saddam, Osama, what have you, what have you been watching? <laughs> <laughs> That's seamless. A seamless link there. Nice. Well, let's, I'm just going to give a, a, I'm just going to give a, a, a little rundown on, uh, on, on the format of what we're going to be talking about today. So we'll have a what we've been watching section where we're both going to go over quite a large number of things, I think. Mm. Then we're going to talk about our top five podcast films of the year. So these were specifically films that we watched for the podcast as part of the toss. We're going to mention our favorite double bill from back when we did two films in the same week. Our favorite TV series that we watched this year our favorite overall film, a film that we think more people should watch, and then finally, to top it all off, the most important categories, we've got a worst film and also a worst week. I don't know about you, but for me, these were two separate things, worst film and worst week. Um, wow, interesting. Uh... Yeah, so we'll see. We'll see when we, we get around to that anyway. Okay, let's do but it. But I guess we should get started with what we've been watching. Yeah, so we both started watching. I randomly came across the show Station Eleven, which is an HBO Max adaptation of the 2014 Emily St. John Mandel novel. Which I have not read. Neither have I. It's the story of a young actress in Chicago who survives a 99% kill rate flu pandemic and who, 20 years later, is living with the Traveling Symphony, a group of actors who travel around the Great Lakes performing Shakespeare plays. Again, this is... So this is something that I think deviates in significant ways from the source material. I haven't read the novel, but uh, I think people who have read the novel perhaps don't like it that much. I love it. I am yeah. obsessed. I'm I'm obsessed with this show. Obsessed. Yeah. You just texted it's, it's me in my head. About it's in it, my head. About it yesterday. Um and yeah. I I read the synopsis and I was like, oh, that sounds up my street. I'll watch it. So I watched the first three episodes last night and it was nothing like I imagined it would be. <laughs> I, what no, did you think it was going to be? 
I the, when reading the synopsis, I felt like, oh, this is this sounds kind of like. <laughs> Sounds kind of like a Cormac McCarthy uh, novel or yeah. something, you know. But um, yeah, yeah, that's fair. And there are there are little elements of that in it. Mm-hmm. There are, but they're not taking over the show. The show has much more um, humanity in it than lore. Yeah, it like like it's about people. Um, and the I found the first episode particularly now so far fascinating. Uh, mm. With um, what's his chops, uh, Hamesh. Uh, you know, Mesh Patel. Yeah, yeah, the guy from yesterday. From from yesterday. Yeah, and yeah. Eastenders and Eastenders and something else new. I, I hear, but anyway, uh, Tenet. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Him just wandering around New York by night as the apocalypse is descending. Chicago. It was it Chicago? Sorry, uh, lying yeah. lying to this like little girl just because to keep her kind of safe. I just found that incredible. It it nailed. It just nailed so many of the things that I felt the adaptation, last year's adaptation of The Stand failed to do. I gave up Mm -hmm. on that, and I'm a huge fan of that book, but I felt they missed out on the humanity and leaned into the lore too heavily. What's so great about the book of that is there's actually, there's not so much plot, but there's loads of character, and that's what eventually Mm -hmm. makes you there for the plot. But here, I'm on episode three. There's really not much of a plot to speak of so far. You've got some great episodes coming up. Episode five is very good. It's set in an airport. Mm. And episode seven is one of the strongest episodes of TV that I've seen in a long time. Well, I tell Uh, you what, it has me like. It really, really has me by mm. the gonads at this point. Go on. At the time of recordings, the first seven episodes are available. So there's still three more to go. This is a mini series. There's not going to be a season two or anything like that. Uh, The showrunner, Patrick Somerville, worked on The Leftovers. And oh, there you there go. There are a few similarities there, especially in episode seven. There's a real kind of strong leftovers uh, vibe. Well, there's apart a... from that, it's it's it has similarities to things like The Last of Us. Yeah, it feels like a game. It's very very gamey. The score actually is by uh, Dan Romer. Beautiful score. Did yeah, it, I I think that's one of the most important aspects for me. It's why The Leftovers is elevated mm. to to its ranking as one of my t- favorite TV shows ever, because of the Max Richter score. And Dan Romer, he's also done um, a game score. He did the score to Far Cry 5. Mm. Uh, he's very good at using banjo and uh, folksy instruments to create like southern music. But then in this show, he also has this kind of danger theme, suspense theme. Yeah. It's so simple and uh, extremely effective. I find been, as well... I've been listening to the podcast from the makers. And, oh, uh, they have one of those? Oh, excellent. I love those. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They've only released the first three so far. Okay. Uh, right. I'll, 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 go, I'll go check that out for sure. I love I love crack like that. Uh, yeah. Um, I think another thing that hasn't come with the leftovers is it just... Uh, it, it just kind of, it trusts its audience in a way people did not used to do with TV. It's just like, you're smart. You'll pick this up. You know, like particularly in the first episode, yeah. it jumps around in a million different directions. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of like, it doesn't like, like at no point when we jump forward to the future and see her in the troop, does anybody go, hey, Kathy girl from the start? <laughs> you know, it's just, which I appreciate because I, I fucking hate it when they do that. Um, because oh, let's face it, you know, the people who will need that will have given up at this point. Um, sorry, people. The, those people are probably engineers because they spent their time doing other things other than watching TV. So they have other strengths, you know? But, um, and like, oh, the one aspect that I really did love in the first episode also was um, they'll show parts, like, let's say, when they're, they just get off the train and then it will give you a five second flash forward of that covered in weeds and grass and shit. Yeah. I love mm-hmm. that as a device. I thought that was really, really well deployed. Okay. 
will I uh, will I go at one? Sure, absolutely. I, I've got so much more to say about Station Eleven, but oh, I think maybe we could. No, no, no. I just think maybe we could save that for when it's all finished. Let's when catch it's all up in three weeks. Yeah, yeah, for and, sure. Yeah, and we've we've all we've caught up on it. It'll be done in less than three weeks. It'll be done in two weeks because they're putting out episode eight and nine together. Okay, and then ten and ten on its own. But it'll be interesting to catch up on that. Sweet. Uh, apart from that, it's, it's such a poorly marketed show. I yes. think very few people have seen it, but the critics like it, so. I would strongly recommend for people to check out Station Eleven. Yeah, yeah, me too. And another strong recommendation that I would have is a, a, a Danish show that came out on Netflix to little fanfare last year, as Netflix tend to do things. Even like the Netflix's uh, most watched show of all time, I believe, um, Squid Game, was actually a word of mouth sensation. They did not advertise that. Uh, that's the Netflix kind of model is to not advertise. Anyway, I see nowhere near the acclaim or the furore um, with the chestnut man, uh, this Danish uh, police pr- procedural about a serial killer, uh, taking out women uh, in not Copenhagen in Denmark, in somewhere else in Denmark. But um, <laughs> the, other, the one other place that exists. Yeah, it's another place. And then there's some parts on an island in Denmark. But I'll tell you what. So... You texted me earlier in the week telling me your favorite genres. Yours was, what was it, um, uh, time travel stuff, got, alternate, hi- three. Yeah. alternate history, and post-apocalyptic. And I couldn't see beyond in my... I'll have to <laughs> look at what I generally gravitate towards more, because I couldn't see beyond police procedure not procedurals just gritty police miniseries kind of thing and, and that's my number four yeah 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 like i i just can't get enough of this stuff and like when i've watched so many of them at this point that i'm kind of okay with the fact that many of them don't quite stick the landing they don't they drag you along through their world and you get to really love the characters and love the plot points where they're figuring things out and stuff and oftentimes they don't quite nail it at the end the chestnut man takes you all the way Really, I it, it I it reminded me of uh, Midnight Mass almost in that its pacing was just correct. You could have accused it of being slow in the first few episodes, but it built up a momentum, and by the end, when it shit does get crazy, you feel like it's well earned. You're there on purpose. You really care about everybody involved. Um, there's a twist in it which you could have seen coming if you paid attention sufficiently. Um, It's real gritty, gnarly stuff as well. I mean, this is uh, not for the faint of heart, but essentially uh, the the stuff that's not for the faint of heart is uh, the most mainstream stuff these days. Everybody loves this shit and laps it up. I really, really would recommend in this case checking out The Chestnut Man. It's just one of those series that, I don't know, it feels like reading a novel, really. It does. It gets like it gets like an airport novel, a beach novel, <laughs> that kind of novel. But it, this is the like series like this is the kind of TV that could legitimately, for me anyway, because I like those types of books as well. Replace a whole section of the bookshop. You know, uh, it feels like that. I really, really did enjoy it. I recommend people check it out uh, ASAP. I would be surprised if they didn't find a way to make some kind of series two of this and bring a couple of the characters back together, because it really, really does work on a level that an awful lot of these shows do not. This is in Danish, right? It's in Danish, yeah. So you get to hear him going like, hello, I'm the chestnut murd. <laughs> yes, exactly. It's so ch- accurate. <laughs> and that's how he refers to himself. He says, hello, I'm the chestnut murd. <laughs> uh, and they're th- like, okay, so we're pretty sure that you're the killer because you just introduced yourself by the 
the serial killer's name. <laughs> Chestnut Man will return. Uh, actually, there is al- a bit almost like that at the end where... Uh, nice. Spo- uh, spo- like, I won't give a spoiler away, but yeah, there's a c- certain clip at the end where you feel like maybe the studio that funded it came into the editing room, watched a bunch and said, is there anything you can leave at the end that might leave it open for some more? And uh, they, they maybe just shot something fresh for that reason. Because, uh, yeah, yeah, I, I really did enjoy this. I recommend you check it out let me know what you think when you're done well if it's half as good as the snowman i won't watch it <laughs> uh what else you got got a bunch of i got too many things got a bunch of things well i'll go let's fly through one that i've just started i've got nothing to say about it but Okey-doke. i just started i just started season four of cobra kai and the oh. only reason i even the only reason i even bring it up is just i'm shocked that it still works i feel like it I feel like it hasn't jumped the shark, but I should have mm. because the number of times that the characters have like teamed up, changed sides, yeah, it shouldn't work. It's basically teen melodrama, and for some reason, I still eat it up. But uh, it's it's, so, it's still so much fun. Don't you get it? It's the shouldn't work that's the secret ingredient. That's the buzz yeah. that carries you along. Like when I st- I've watched, I'm I'm gonna probably inhale that in the next few days i'm off for the next week what carried me from episode one to whatever the last one of the first season was literally the whole time just going what the hell there's no what is this this is nuts but i loved it and i still love it i loved it up until the end of season three and i'm looking forward to season four yeah there's no way it should work what they've done now is they've they've tied in all of the films together with the show, which is impressive, like all oh, three. Oh yeah, of the should they've been bringing people back the from the different ones? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because, yeah, like everyone, literally a, everyone who's still alive. It's such a good opportunity as well because you know anybody yeah. who's ever been like in a Karate Kid film when this started getting big, we're just looking at their phone, going, "Come on, come on, I'll do it, I'll do it for yeah, nothing." <laughs> it's just Jaden Smith sitting there going, "When are they going to call me <laughs> the real Karate Kid? I'm the real one." And yeah, Jackie Chan. Jackie Chan being famous completely frustrated. Karate, famous Japanese man. Is there an Asian person in the fucking show? <sighs> There's one sort of Korean kid who's a baddie. <laughs> <laughs> in oh, season I love three it. and four, I don't know. Well, actually, know you know, there is one G- one th- part that I thought was uh, that really hooked me in the in the first series. I remember is that they don't exaggerate the facts and still Johnny comes out looking like the victim. Yeah. You know, they don't change anything from the movie. Like, you're, you're, uh, Ralph Macchio did steal his girlfriend, you know? Yeah, I mean, it's it was just that how I met your mother, Barney Stinson bit that was kind of a meme that they, they just took that and ran with it. Is that where of the idea like, comes from? Well, that was like where it was popularized in pop culture. I did not know this. Well, I don't think How I Met Your Mother has really survived as anything of any note. I didn't watch that much of it, but like that's where I saw that idea popularized. Okay, cool. All right, shall I hit you up with one? Go. First film I watched of the new year, I had never seen it before. I watched Joe Wright's film, Atonement. Oh, what? wow, first time. Have you ever seen this? I've seen it at least three or four times. God I'm damn. I'm a, a big fan. It's fucking brilliant. It, I love the ending. Uh, in the TV studio? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I thought it was just incredible. For those not in the know, it's kind of a story of uh, Saoirse Ronan being a liar 
about uh, <laughs> uh, Kira Knightley and um, which is quite noticeable because for most of the film her pants are on fire. Indeed, <laughs> it's a subplot. Um, yeah. Her running around trying She's to find a puddle to, to sit to in her underwear. Yeah, <laughs> uh, but yeah, James McAvoy and uh, Cumblebum Bimberbatch is in it too. Um, oh yeah, and uh, as a dodgy pedo, as a dodgy pedo, exactly. Who then marries his victim? Spoiler for Atonement. Um, mm. And like, there's so much to love about this. I mean, okay, it's based on a novel. Fair enough, and the you know the novel clearly knew what it wanted to say, and the film says it very well. Um, like, really, it does feel like a good ab- adaptation of some high class literature. It's shot beautifully, like it, like it really, it's really transportative. I don't know, do they saturate the colors or whatever? But I mean, the whole thing that you're leading up to in it, like that I'm leading up to and talking about it, is that Dunkirk sequence. Is in it's better than the film Dunkirk. Incredible! It's probably better, and I love the film it Dunkirk. Looks better. Yeah. It's incredible what they did with that. You get you get more of a sense of depth there, of in terms of how many people there are. The chaos of it yeah. is just nuts. Oh my! Like I was just jaw on the floor, and I always I often say that um, how good a one a oneer. And like a one-shot take is is dependent on how long before you say to yourself, oh my God, they haven't cut the camera. Now, fair enough. I probably said that early on in this, but it's so long, the shot. It mo- like it, I don't know, I haven't looked it up since, but it must be like 10 or 15 minutes or something. It's crazy. Was it that much? It is so long. And you get like, then later you'll pass by like, I don't know, a downed plane. And then later on when they get up to another place, you can see that in the background. I don't know how many extras they got in on that. It's crazy that shot. It's like it must have had that must have been the budget basically. That shot. Incredible. Um so yeah. I think off the basis of that film everyone kind of assumed that Joe Wright was going to go on and become a legend, but he's mm. had really it's been a bit of a mixed bag since then. I There's been some good films, but there's been some shockers. I don't know if I've seen anything else by him. What else has he done? Uh well, one of the better films he made was Hannah. That was strong. Yeah, he did that Peter Pan thing. Darkest mm. Hour, solid enough. Oh, I saw that. Yeah, that was okay. He made The Soloist, which I've never got around to watching. That's with Jamie Foxx and Robert Downey Jr. No, it looked very Oscar Beatty. Uh, Anna Karenina. Oh, yeah, Woman in the Window is supposed to be very poor. But his latest film is the uh, Serrano de Bergerac adaptation with Peter Dinklage. Hmm. Okay. Which, again, is supposed to be fairly solid. Yeah, but still, Atonement is fucking incredible. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I was ju- I was just totally, totally blown away by it. Also, as well, I mean, it's clearly Benedict Cumberbatch. <laughs> what do you mean? Well, like, <laughs> I don't know. Like, it's strange that he even survived this early run of roles to become, you know, an effective leading man who's uh, usually yeah. a hero because he's such a ch- uh, just a, a villain in this. He used to play that role all the time around then. Did you, did you ever watch um, Starter for Ten? Yes, I did. And also opposite James McAvoy. Like, yeah, he's playing a very similar role, just like upper class evil posh guy. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, like Charles Dance Jr. Basically, that's yeah. what he's... That, I, I kind of wish he would do a bit more of that. Yeah, Instead yeah. of becoming this kind of good guy leading man, he should have become the next Charles Dance. Charles because Dance, gotta love Char- a bit Charles of Charles Dance's Dance. Charles Dance's days are, are numbered, unfortunately. He's getting up there. He must be, yeah. But God damn, he is brilliant. What else have you been watching? He's a great, one of the greats. Uh, well, I uh, recommended this to you 
uh, by text. This was, uh, I, I get most of my film recommendations these days from the, the r slash movie suggestions subreddit. And one of those which comes up all the time, a film that people all constantly recommend, is a 2020 Canadian film, The Kid Detective. Mm. Have you sought this out yet? Uh, I have been looking around in my local blockbuster, yeah. <laughs> it's definitely in there. It's on a dusty shelf. Haven't uh, watched it very, yet, no. It's a very, very dark comedy slash whodunit starring Adam Brody, who apparently is off of the OC. Yes, so I, I'm led to believe. But uh, yeah, he's great here as a once successful child detective, a la the Hardy Boys, beloved by the local community, now a washed-up 30-something alcoholic struggling to pay his bills. Uh, tonally, it reminds me a bit of Kiss Kiss Bang Bang with mm. Shades of Brick. Uh, it's very funny, but with a very strong emotional core. I, I can't stress enough how dark it is. <laughs> it, t- it takes a real twist at one point and gets extremely dark, but it's also very, very, very funny. I, I absolutely blew me away. I loved it, and I plan to watch it again. I'm looking forward to it. Future. Okay. The Kid Detective. Um, I watched, the uh, night before I left Ireland, I watched uh, a film. I don't know, have you ever seen Neil Jordan's Michael Collins? No. No, I've watched this many times. Many times. Legally, you had to, right? You were, you were I mean, duty-bound to it almost, I remember Collins. this was in the cinema in Ireland for like three or four months. <laughs> Is it still there now? <laughs> it might. <laughs> like i i, I constantly I, on i remember i like so it would have been released before christmas and i went to see it for my friend's birthday at the start of march and the cinema was still packed this is true like um it was like uh and people were still you know yeah brits out all of that shit but basically it's the story of irish revolutionary michael collins um and uh it, from the 1916 rising up until his death in the middle of the irish civil war um it's funny to look at it now because it's like i mean it's it's great fun it's the role of liam neeson's lifetime really he's never been better he's so good in this but it's like you've when you cast because it's a historical argument in Irish history that, you know, whether or not Michael Collins should have given up the six counties, De Valera was on the other side of that. But when you cast Liam Neeson as your Michael Collins and Alan Rickman as your De Valera, that, I mean, that's a statement in nice. itself, you know. <laughs> we know what side you're on, Neil Jordan. Um, there's a lot of people, including uh, Enemy of the Show, Stephen Ryan, that have a lot of uh, discrepancies with some of the historical material. They use a car bomb when there was no car bombs, etc., um, but in general, Stephen Ryan wouldn't be a fan of Michael Collins historically. It's like, I do think it's great fun uh, as a historical blockbuster kind of, because it is, it, it really moves along with a clip and there's some really memorable lines in it. Um, like, you know, kiss off action movie lines kind of thing. But in the end, I suppose for the more nuanced view of Irish history, you'd probably be better off going with them, um, even though it's completely fictional. Um, Ken Loach's Win the Chicks the Barley but uh, I mean fuck me if Michael Collins isn't a bit of crack like it's so much fun I still haven't watched these Irish fantasy films (laughs) 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 I'm very much I I, I don't know why I haven't watched I told you I'm getting into fantasy yeah yeah I I would I would like to watch this all I can envision in my head is the front cover image I guess the poster image of just Liam Neeson looking like he's at a rally or something yeah shouting, yeah, yeah, and yeah just like his hair is all tousled he just looks like yeah he's like he needs to iron his shirt our friends at the royal, royal irish constabulary have shown up to shut me up 
Well, I've got this to ask you. If they shut me up, who is going to take my place? That's it. That's kind of why I imagine it's just it's just a film of being. It's a lot of that. Out, yeah, yeah, it's a lot of that. Which is fine. I can <laughs> I can deal with that. It's great fun. Yeah. Well, I've got another couple of things to mention. Uh, I'll fly through one because I don't have much to say about it, and that's that I finished The Wire season five. Ooh. Uh, it felt far more rushed this time round than usual. I could really feel the lack of episodes. I think we talked a bit before about the lack of nuance in the newsroom mm. is is kind of one of the big mm, semi-failures of just all the management are bastards and all the reporters, except for Scott, except for Scott Templeton, are mm. goodies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And good guys and have like a kind of Shakespearean wit. Mm-hmm. And anyone who works in management is just an utter shite bag. Maybe that is accurate, but it just it is not very nuanced. The thing that surprised me was that whole clock code surveillance thing. It's only actually introduced in like the last three or four episodes. Yeah, that feels but rushed. in my in my brain that feels like it's like a big part of the of the season, but in reality, it's nothing. It's great because there's a, a, a something very satisfactory about like because you know the way. McNulty never got to put the cuffs on Stringer Bell. There's something very so satisfactory. We, spoilers for the wire-ish here. <laughs> I'm not going to spoil anything, but <laughs> there's something very satisfactory about when Lester Freeman just shows Marlowe the clock. That is, yeah, that's a nice moment. Yeah, the, the the serial killer plot didn't really bother me, except it does a lot to reverse Jimmy's character growth from season four, which feels slightly out of order. Yes. Um. The series finale, for me, is still one of the all-time greats. The way that they made everything cyclical mm. and circular and brought everything around was great. Also, I think this might be Aidan Gillen's best ever performance because he's so yeah. often stilted in things like Game of Thrones or Dark Knight Rises, but mm. I think he really embodied old uh, Tommy Carcetti perfectly in this. Does Series 5 contain the one where he basically is waiting outside the governor's office with his, you know, hat in hand? I think that's Season 4. Because that's when he takes a turn as a politician, Because he's still trying basically. to fix his schools. Oh, yeah, sure. Yeah, the serial killer. They, they have the scene where they tell Aidan Gillen that it was... <laughs> yeah, that's in the final episode. That's a brilliant scene. That's the start of the finale. But that, but think about that. That's crazy, though. Like, that's... The, that is the start of the final episode of the show is when the mayor finally finds out and has to deal with it. Yeah, that's it very It feels dumb. like there's more to it, but it mm. is so rushed. Mm. Um, I suppo- I've got nothing else to, t- to tell you about. Oh, wait, no. The only other thing I, I had was MacGruber. Oh, yeah, you have MacGruber. Go on, tell us about that's MacGruber. R- I, so I've watched half. The, it's an eight-episode series. It's a direct continuation of the 2009 film. This is on the Peacock Mm. the NBC streaming platform. If you enjoyed the MacGruber 2009 film, then you will enjoy this TV series. The only problem that it might have, it's a bit hit and miss. Uh, one episode, you kind of go like, this is great. They've captured the exact same tone of the film. Mm. It's really, really funny. And then the next episode feels a bit like filler. Episode four really had me laughing. It's just, <laughs> some of the back and forth is cl- classic MacGruber. Oh, I um, should watch it. I still find myself kind of struggling to get through it. I, I, I like, I'll find something else to watch instead. Yeah, and I th- think I'm just not. I'm my expectations are fairly low, and I will eventually get around to to finishing it. But it, it is solid. It is good. It's worth watching. There are so many good shows out there these days that, for me, comedy usually there draws really draws the short straw. And I think part of it is down to the fact that, like. 
for me, the the greatest show, The Soprano, uh, the greatest show of all time, The Sopranos, is funnier than ninety percent of comedies. The Wire is funny, is hilarious in yeah, parts. True. I feel like in, in like instinctively, I gravitate towards more towards stuff like that because I feel like even the the leftovers is hilarious in parts. Um, leftovers, Station Eleven's pretty funny from time yeah. to time. I feel like, you know, you can get your two for the price of one. It's only like... Yeah. And then when it comes to comedies, I'll just revisit the same shit over and over and over again, you know? Yeah. The stuff you know off by heart. Like, people are always recommending to me these new South Park movies about the pandemic, and I just find... Mm. Like, I, I, I should. For some reason, I feel I should. But um, why <laughs> is the question, I suppose. Why the <laughs> fuck should I? My, bro- my younger brother is constantly recommending this show to me. People just do nothing. Which I might oh, yeah. give a watch to, maybe. Why, you don't like it? Not a fan? No, I, I just remember watching the trailer for the film because they... People just do nothing in Japan. to Tokyo. Yeah. yeah, they go to Tokyo. It was filmed when I was there. Okay. I never saw them filming or anything, but it's just one of those things where you find out something was filmed in a place where you were. You know, like a year later, you're like, oh, that's weird. I was there at the same time. I like actually... I tried to get into the mindset of the people who were filming, but... I, was yeah, pa- I don't think it's for me, anyway. I was passing through Plaza España one day, and there was a big hullabaloo up the top, and I just kept walking, obviously, because I was doing my own thing. I later found out they were fin- filming Uncharted there. Oh, yeah, yeah, could have yeah. been in it. Exactly, I could have been in it. I could have gone, hey, I'm better than... No, I'll uh, be Tom Holland. Yeah, exactly, I could be the Tom Holland. You know, Nathan Drake seems like he would have a beard. Do you have any hope for that yeah. film whatsoever? No, but I will watch it. <laughs> yeah, and yeah, yeah. It's got to happen. They're going to re-release a kind of updated version of Uncharted 4 and Uncharted Lost Legacy to mm. cash in at the same time. Nice. Good job. So they just play the games. Yes. Forget the film. Forget the films exist. Okay, so let's move into our top five of the year. The way that I've broken this down, or the way that I think about this now, about all of these choices of a best of the year is... I don't think it really matters when stuff comes out anymore. I feel like in a way, just because with the pandemic and even before that, I feel like cinema was devalued to such an extent that nowadays people are more accustomed to streaming and also just finding things later, sometimes years later than when they they, they even came out, mm. which, is the, which is the case with a lot of the films that we watched for the podcast. So the way that I think about all of this top of the year, best of the year, etc. These are things for me and for you is when we first watched them. They weren't specifically released in 2021, but that was when we watched them. So to kick off, first of all, we've got our top five of the year. We can count up starting in number five with uh, a short explanation of why we chose each one. Do you want to go first with your number five? I will indeed. My number five is John Duggan's uh, film, Duggan, Duggan, whatever. The year my voice broke, which uh, was from our Australia week. We paired it up with Wake and Fright. Um, yeah, I I had seen Wake and Fright before. I had not seen this. Uh, this really, really blew me away. I think it's maybe the perfect coming of age story. Because just it, like I said this to you at the time, it was... It reminded me so much of what it's like to be a teenager that it was painful. <laughs> uh, part- you did grow up in Australia in the 1950s <laughs> as well, right? Yes, indeed. Uh, but it's just that uh, Noah Taylor longing, and it's like, you know, 
Yeah. <laughs> you, you see, the, the the only people who are watching films like this are the Noah Taylors. The Ben Mendelsohn characters are <laughs> yes. all in prison or dead. Uh, so <laughs> and uh, you know, yeah, he's he's walking around like Morrissey the entire time. Oh god damn, and it's ju- like it's it is just so <laughs> painful. But like you know, in a good way. Um, I yeah, I really really enjoyed this, and everything that happened in it made just perfect sense to who the characters were and their place in the, in the structure and uh, what and what happens to them in the end you i believe you liked it so much you watched the sequel on youtube didn't you i did flirting that's right i wonder if flirting is still up on youtube getting hold of uh the year my voice broke is quite tough which is tough and in i think itself. that's a real shame yeah i, I seem to remember we commented at the time that the director came under fire or was like uh accused yeah. of uh, uh, grooming by Tandy uh, Newton. That's right, yeah. Tandy Way Newton, I think she goes by now. But uh, yeah, so I don't know if that's got something to do with it. These films have basically fallen away to nothingness. It's impossible to get hold of, which I think is a real shame because they're they're both really solid films. Yeah, you know, which uh, flirting's not as good, but it's still it's it's a it's the same character. Noah Taylor's playing the same character, and it's uh, it's still it's it's worth watching. And uh, to reference the newest Louis C.K. special, oh, which I should have included in my what I've been watching. I watched it. It's excellent. Um, but to reference the new Louis C.K. special, I mean, which is worse, a teenage groomer who makes wonderful coming-of-age films or one who does not? <laughs> there, there you go. <laughs> cool. What's your number five? Well, my number five is something that uh, you had already seen before, so wouldn't have made it into your list. Because, again, these top five, the films that we chose... It's the first time that we watched them. So for me, this was the first time that I saw The Irishman. Oh, yeah. Martin Scorsese's The Irishman. I'm very glad I finally got around to watching this. I think the length was what initially put me off, kind of clocking in at three and a half hours. I'd seen people talking about like how to break it down into sections, into a kind of miniseries. Ooh. Uh, I I was surprised at how quick a pace it actually moves at. There's con- It's a typical Martin Scorsese. There's so much happening mm. it's a, 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 a move it's it's far more in line with the previous gangster films rather than something like silence which <laughs> that was one that did kind of uh that, that one did hurt a little bit in the cinema you, you're just when you were talking there about basically the pace of the irish man i was thinking scorsese is a master of pace isn't he because also then if you think about it like it or lump it silence is definitely meant to be slow as fuck silence <laughs> It is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he achieves that. <laughs> Tell me about your number four. Uh, my number four is, uh, coincidentally, another Martin Scorsese film. I had never seen um, 1995's Casino. So I was uh, absolutely delighted uh, to have watched that this year. Yeah, I mean, it just it kind of makes a very... Uh, I think we did our top five Scorsese's that week as well. But I think it just makes a just a very fitting follow-up to um, Goodfellas. And it's a really interesting companion piece to The Irishman as well. Because The Irishman is almost like triangular-shaped in that like you know it starts off with this big epic epic canvas and everything just gets more narrow and narrow as you close in on the end which is no spoiler to say is just you know it, it's a grim ending full of death basically whereas despite the fact that there's loads of death in casino it's just about the explosion of vegas into a kind of a gangster str- from a gangster stronghold into sort explosion of a explosion of a car bomb 
Indeed. Uh, that's how it starts. Indeed, yeah, that's it. And uh, he and ends. And he survives it. What? He's a, a composite Spoilers. character, isn't he? Ace Rothstein. He's based on somebody else. Anyway. Yeah, some guy called Ace and some guy called Rothstein. There we are. But uh, yeah, it just expands out into this just chaos. Uh, I really, really enjoyed it. Like I said, I was actually thinking about watching it again recently. Um, and the length actually did put me off, but not because I didn't want to watch it, just because I didn't want to actually break it up. Uh, I wanted to sit down and have that full near three hour experience once again, you know? I think I said around the time, I, I think I said in that episode, I've seen Casino so many times and it is seared into my memory from the 90s that it just, it's not even a film to me. Mm. It's like a kind of, it's like a cultural touchstone yeah. and less a film. It's just something that I know back to front every image of it just it's you know when something's like that it's a part of your own personal history Mm. it's just interesting to me that you hadn't watched it yeah i suppose i danced around it a lot so my number four was paddington 2 again this is a film that you'd already seen the reason i went for this one is because it was a welcome break from some of the darker films that we've watched it's Mm. just it's really joyful it's a delightful kind of there's there's redemption for bad character baddies like uh, Hugh Grant's uh, evil singing and dancing. <laughs> At the end, he's in prison. Yeah, that's right. Singing, doing a nice little dance number with some of his fellow inmates. Uh, it's very much in the same vein as Ted Lasso, which was uh, one of the real joys of this year mm. to watch. And uh, yeah, I just think the images on display, the tone is just so positive. It's and for me, who's perhaps prone to negativity at times, yeah, I agreed wholeheartedly. And yeah, with it, it, it's it's in the same world as Ted Lasso. Somehow, couldn't quite tell you how. My number three was very early on in the year. I think it was the first week of the year, actually. Uh, Mike Lee's Topsy Turvy, uh, which is his story about Gilbert and Sullivan making the Mikado after a little bit of artist's block. The music of Gilbert and Sullivan almost isn't the point of the film. It's the f- the point of the film is to just give you a real sort of a dense guided tour around um Victorian London and the Victorian world in general and Victorian theater. And uh I well, like there's so many aspects of this that I loved. Uh I remember I was because I was in Madrid having planned to go to Ireland but I was in Madrid for the because of the pandemic. Uh, I was feeling a little loo- uh, a little a little blue, a little down. Also, the companion piece for that f- week did not help. Vera Drake is not a, exactly a barrel of, <laughs> of laughs. But um, yeah, watched watching Topsy Turvy just really. It was some real escapism for me. Um, I mean, you've got a lot of the regular Mike Lee players. Jim Broadbent uh, is there. Timothy Spall, Leslie Manville, but and they've all got their subplots. The film I enjoyed tremendously, and I also just enjoyed. The idea of the kind, not uh, audacity is the wrong word, but just what an original kind of artist Mike Lee is for what he was known for at the time was gritty council estate stuff or, you know, dramas of middle class England that kind of thing. And then he just goes and does a time jump very effectively all the way back to Victorian London for Topsy Turvy. I absolutely loved it. Yeah, I I remember at the time uh, singing a lot to myself. In the kind of typical Gilbert and Sullivan style. In the cadence of Gilbert and Sullivan, but with changing 
the words to things which are not appropriate to share right now. That was great fun. It was a fun I week. I was doing yeah. it a lot. I feel like I've now forgotten how to do that. I will not be cast in any Gilbert and Sullivan things. You just need to repeat now. the last line. I remember that part. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's, that's a big part of it. Yeah, it was beautiful. It's one of those things I'd put off for years and years. You're much more of a Mike Lee uh, fan than I am. I just haven't yes. watched enough of his films, really. And I, I know I should, but often I just feel like it's going to be torturous in the, terms of like, I'm not going to have fun. I'm going to I'm gonna enjoy the overall experience, mm. but it, I know it's going to break me. Yeah, the problem is they're so important. So I always put off important things because, you know, I mean, supposing I don't get it, yeah. that means I'm a dum-dum. But in, I've in, watched... Go on. I was just going to say, I've watched more films from his cousin, Spike Lee. Ah, yes, indeed. Although those are quite <laughs> important as well, it must be said. They are very important. They're very similar filmmakers in the, the Lee family. Yes. I do, like, uh, I, yeah, I find uh, his films are invariably rewarding. Although I have to say, <laughs> I have to say uh, having rewatched Naked recently, I mean, Naked is tough. <laughs> I don't know when I'll watch that again, but Naked is tough going. Anyway, what's your uh, number three? My number three is... Uh, Stanley Kubrick's Paths of Glory. Yes, with our old friend Timothy Carey. Timothy Carey, legend, friend of the show. Uh, Hell yeah. This, for me, completed the Kubrick set because I'm not including whatever it is, Spider's Kiss or whatever the hell it's called, mm. Killer's Kiss. That doesn't count. That's a little no. shite. As far as I'm concerned, the first film was The Killing, so I've seen them all. And uh, yeah, I was just surprised how powerful it was considering it's almost 70 years old. A World War One courtroom drama mm. with uh, with Kirk with Kirk Douglas. I just I was shocked to find that it still resonated. I could still feel the drama really strongly. Something like Twelve Angry Men, something of that ilk. Uh, yeah, it it blew me away, and it's clear you can see the 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 early roots of what Kubrick would later achieve. Yeah, I, I loved it. Well, I had seen it before um, when we watched it, and one I remember one of the things that struck me this time around was there's always a little bit of Kubrick's sense of humor in everything he does, even in this. There's parts of it that are just like, okay, anytime you're casting Timothy Carey and you're as smart as Kubrick, you <laughs> you know you're playing for some kind of laughs, like the man's a lunatic. Um, he's <laughs> <laughs> just a lunatic. He's crazy. Uh, yeah, I remember that struck out at me. And also there's like some of the the villainous players the higher ranking people in the military are so obviously villains you know i mean that it must have been <laughs> quite nailed on as well uh yeah oh, yeah, yeah. And we spoke a lot at the time of how that influenced people like david simon to later go on and make the wire yeah that's right david simon has commented on that extensively anyway there we go shall i tot out my number two yeah Okay, my Please number do. two was from the Kate Shortland wink week. Yeah, fair enough. My, the one I should probably be including from that week is Somersault, which I also loved, uh, like, massively. I should just probably pop that on the list as well. Let's just give Somersault a special mention. I did really, really <laughs> love Somersault. But the one that struck me most from that week and has kind of stayed with me, and I want to watch it again, I've recommended it to a lot of people, is her 2012 historical drama lore set in the uh, immediate post-war Germany. Um, it's... It's striking that she does so much with what seems like not a lot of money, to be honest, even though I understand it did. It cost more than uh, like her regular sort of budget because it was notable for the amount of money it lost. But really, you just you get the sense of 
post-war Germany immediately because of the the actors and the the panic in everybody and the you know the chaos that surrounds the country, uh, and it doesn't really try to to make any points until the last scene um so it's about basically this girl Laura and her brothers and sisters and they're later joined by another uh, fella um sort of making their way across uh, germany trying to get to their aunt's house and their f- parents are like um would be nazi hierarchy so they're trying to keep that information stum as well um and uh, yeah it's i just found it uh, spellbinding terrific epic in the best sort of in the best sort of way um, and uh, yeah, I would love to go back and visit this again soon. I I think I said at the time, Somersault is one of my favorite films of all time. I liked Laura and Berlin Syndrome, but to me, they don't hold a candle to, to Somersault. Laura is a film that I think I, I would like to rewatch because maybe it kind of got lost in the mix of having those three films together. Uh, I enjoyed it, but it just didn't stand out that much to me. You're not an intellectual like, like me and Adrian Mole. Well, that's correct. I'm not like, uh, I'm not walking around like Noah Taylor going, oh, Laura's the best, the best <laughs> Kate Shortland film. And only I understand and that ruffian, that ruffian Ben Mendelsohn. He likes, he probably likes Black Widow or something. That's the kind of thing. That's the Kate Shortland film he would like. He probably uh, roots for um, the Bob Hoskins character. Bob Hoskins, Ray Winstone, <laughs> <laughs> very very similar. The modern day Bob Hoskins, yeah, yeah, he probably a similar re- a similar uh, a similar accent work. Mm, indeed, always. <laughs> they must have the same agent or competing agents, <laughs> like agents in very direct competition with one another. So my number two film was oh again by a director who went on to make a Marvel film this year, and that was Chloe Zhao or Chloe Zhao, and I chose her second feature film. The Rider, and not her Oscar-winning film from last year. Yes. Uh, Nomadland. Which neither of us were near as hot on as The Rider. The Rider was excellent. Yeah, I've, I think The Rider, for me, is still the high point in her filmography. Uh, I haven't seen her first film, but I think what The Rider captured was just the similar kind of magic hour beauty that she's brought to all of her work, even in Eternals. She managed to, she managed to get that going. But I just think the use of non-actors to, to tell a quote-unquote true story, Nomadland didn't work for me mm. with, with the mix of fictional and, and real people melded together. But telling Brady Jandro's Bronco Rider story in The Rider just, I don't know, it spoke to me. I, I found it very moving. I thought that was a very beautiful film. Yeah, it's incredible. I it was... I thought it was interesting. I just thought it was unlike most other films that I was that I'd watched. Yeah, you're just you're well, you're watching you're seeing something real, you know? You're seeing something somebody do something very well that, you know, yeah. you can't exactly teach an actor <laughs> to do. It's it's beautiful in that way. Okay, well, my we're on Big to num- reveal. We're on to number ones, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. What's I, your number one? Okay. Uh, well, my number one, I was very enthusiastic about it at the time and remain so really, really need to get back and rewatch this. Um, 2015's Kiro uh, uh, Guerra film, Embrace of the Serpent. Thank you, Chiro? Chiro Guerra? Chiro Guerra, Embrace of the Serpent. Now, I've seen two films by this lad. I've seen his other one, Birds of Passage, which I also loved. But I found this 
utterly transportative. Um, it just drew me in immediately like nothing else. Now, I generally, any kind of fiction that is near enough that you can recognize the traits of humans, uh, you know, you can see a bit of yourself in the characters, but far back enough in the past so the world was still a massive place, like, I love that. I love that this this could be Middle Earth, <laughs> almost. It's so far away. But at the same time, it's it's the planet we currently you know live on yeah i i was really really blown away by this if anybody who hasn't seen it out there it is um two stories told 30 years apart um about uh featuring one featuring a a shaman the last survivor of his tribe and um uh first of all a german scientist who's an explorer and then an american scientist later both looking for this rare plant and they travel around and get into they visit the same locations 30 years apart and different things has gone on there um there's a mad scene with a weird cult in the middle of the jungle um it's just absolutely fantastic really transportative stuff couldn't recommend it highly enough that was my number one from the films we watched for the podcast last year i enjoyed that film and it is something that i've thought about a lot more um as time has gone on i don't think i enjoyed it as much as you but I do think it's a very interesting, well-made film. It's kind of surprising, this black and white, a small black and white story about two generations of exploration in Colombia. It's, it's something that I, I, I would like to go back and revisit because, uh, yeah, I, 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 again, I haven't seen any of his other films, but he's clearly a very, a very talented filmmaker as well, Chiro Guerra. And your own number one? My number one is a film that you selected for the podcast, and that was uh, Jacques Audiard's Deepan. Yurt. Deepan Pizza. I'll take some. <laughs> That's his surname. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I think uh, I was blown away by this because I had no expectations. I think when I <laughs> racistly, <laughs> this ad- let's start with this adverb, racistly, when I saw the name of the film, immediately I was like, oh my God. I'm going to have to watch this. Donica's chosen some Bollywood film and I'm going to have to watch it and it's going to be awful. And little did I know (laughs) that it it wasn't that. Um, Although I think I'd never seen Sri Lanka. I'd never seen Mm. Sri Lanka portrayed in film like this. I don't think I'd really seen it in film at all very much. Maybe as like a background, background scenery in some Western spy thriller or something. But just to see the reality of the brutal war, the brutality of the war, the never-ending war there, mm. and to have a character who this Tamil tiger who's lost his family and just just experienced some of the the again the most brutal warfare imaginable, to have him relocated to France and then come up against annoying knobs, yeah. just utter cunts. I just, I love that. I love the the concept of these people think they're hard. Yeah, yeah. But they don't realize they're against like a war vet of one of the roughest local conflicts ever. Yeah. And they just, they, they, they just don't know. They don't know whether there's, there's that emotion that you get when someone, you know, when someone yeah. gets into a street, a street fight with someone and then they're like, oh, he looks like a weakling, but he's like a UFC fighter. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. It's that in film format. It's that, but like gritty and, and real feeling. Beautiful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah no, it is. cameras, just, uh, I want to watch it again immediately. There's that one um, sequence uh, where 
he's he's going to go get uh, the fake wife out of the the apartment building and he gets into a car and sets it on fire and drives into the <laughs> lobby and it's just like it's just nuts and it, like you don't need uh. like like that's like I cuz we're always talking about like action uh cinema and being able to follow the action but it's almost necessary for that scene that you can't follow the action cuz it's just you, this guy, I mean, I suppose you would say, you know, I am in a world of shit. <laughs> like, you know, you know, what the fuck but, does... Yeah, yeah. But real and gritty. Yeah, it's, exactly. That's the thing. It's, it's amazing. Like just seeing that trajectory of, of someone who uh, experiencing war and then bringing that war to a bunch of dicks yeah exactly and they are a bunch of lurks <laughs> they're a bunch like the antagonists in that film are the sort of people who, uh, lis- who listen to music on a speaker in the metro like yeah, that's them absolutely yeah 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 it's brilliant for that love it and love it french music oh the worst, worst french hip-hop to to on a speaker. Yeah. <laughs> let them burn so Lanka, don't Lanka shoot let them burn <laughs> yeah all right so uh we go into best week yeah, so we've got a few categories here. Let's start off with our favorite double bill, mm. favorite week of the podcast from 2021. Okay, will I go first? Yeah, why not? All right. Well, um, mine was uh, mine was for one. I mean, I had, I'm just a huge fan of this guy, and it was just uh, great to watch two of the films together. Mine was the week of Black Hat and Collateral. I was just looking down through our lists and just judging what what I had the and I just remember having a great michael mann deep dive <laughs> that week uh so yeah sorry i'm I like no, there were no no great surprises there i fucking love michael mann and that was a great week for it to be honest what was the name of the the cut of uh black hat oh it wasn't a director's cut it had some other name anyway mm. we talked about it if you've if you want to watch black hat i would highly recommend watching it but the theatrical cut that went out was not very good there was some kind of production cut or something i can't remember the name anyway there was a guy on twitter that hooked me up with a version of it i'm sure you could do the same if you look around you can find this cut but it's it's so much better which moves the nuclear it moves yeah the nuclear meltdown to the start of the film is it or yeah it 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 completely changes they uh, i think it no it wasn't no 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 it moves it to later in the film it starts with the the theatrical shorting the like grain whatever the, mm. the grain stock exchange thing where they just thought like the average viewer wouldn't be able to comprehend the importance of it which is fair enough because i can't even remember what it was called well talk about, about like uh, like talk about action just those are two great films for just i mean how good michael mann is at that stuff i just th- like in both films i found the action tremendous particularly of course in collateral it has to be said but uh, yeah, still, yeah. there's some fantastic sequences of, and also uh, like, <laughs> this is a, a strange thing to love about. My, but I love the fact that um, Michael Mann. Well, actually, and you know what? Maybe uh, Black Hat is a strange instance of him bowing to some sort of pressure and putting the meltdown at the start. But Michael Mann, you know, doesn't doesn't really give a fuck if you're interested or not. He'll do things at his own pace. Like there, there's that weird part in Black Hat where the baddies go out to a boat to get a projectile missile. <laughs> Yes. And like, like unless you're really following that, se- that sequence makes no sense. Like, you know, you, you you've got to be paying attention for a Michael Mann film. Um, yeah, loved it, loved it. 
that was his last film. I mean, he might not be coming out with anything else. Yeah, we we mentioned that as well um, that week, which would be sad. My favorite double bill was, uh, well, you've already mentioned it, uh, the year my voice broke in Wake and Fright, mm. uh, which also included flirting for me as well, the, the sequel to the year my voice broke. I think in a, a time where we were maybe indoors a lot during kind of pandemic-y lockdown times, it, I've, it just felt like being transported to Australia of of another time, kind of outback, countryside. Yeah, for real. Yeah, it was very uh, transportative. I mean, partic- uh, particularly, I'm going to say uh, Wake and Fright, which just kind of yeah. is otherworldly and strange and scary. Wake th- That kind of experience of watching something like Wake and Fright, it was something that you'd seen before. Mm. I'd never even heard of it. And yeah. I was like, you know, I, I've I've heard of a lot of films. Yeah. <laughs> and to have something just just put in there where you're like, I, this is never, I'd never even heard of it. Uh, the, 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 the concept of it was so strange. And it is a very strange film, but it, oh, wow, it really does transport you to like another world. A place where you do not want to be. <laughs> yeah, a place where we've, we've definitely spent some time. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Luckily, not too much time. I got out of that place. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've yeah. been it. I lived in Wake and Fry for a bit. Oy. Oy. Uh, just the pub scenes where there's just beer <laughs> coming from every direction and you don't know who's buying it. It's, ooh. Uh, That's Australia for you. There you go. Uh, so, what was your favorite TV tell me, show? Uh, oh, go on, you. Yeah, favorite TV. Well, okay, I think you, you go first for these ones. You go first for these ones. So the next category that we were looking at was favorite TV series that we watched in 2021. Okay. Well, I've probably mentioned this ad nauseum throughout the year, um, but I'm going to double down on it and say it was from very early on in 2021, I believe. Um, Russell T. Davies' miniseries about uh, the AIDS pandemic in Britain, It's a Sin. Uh, I've watched it twice. I will watch it again. It's not just the best TV show I've seen the, uh, this year. It's the best thing, like, for for real. I've Anybody listening who has not seen it, I th- including Andy, who has not seen it, I really, really recommend you check this out. Uh, I thought it was amazing. It's not a big misery guts of a thing. It's real vibrant, full of joy. All, it's also very poignant, very sad. You'll bawl your eyes out, like, if you're into that kind of thing. Um, yeah, I couldn't recommend this highly enough. Uh, do check it out. Yeah, I, I don't know why I, I haven't watched it. I do like Russell T. Davies' work, except for Doctor Who, because I <laughs> dislike Doctor yeah, Who. I'm sure that. his episodes would have been fine, but I just i am not into that. I'd much rather uh, <laughs> watch <laughs> something about people having a horrible time. That sounds much more up my street. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'll de- I will definitely check. How many episodes is it? Five. Six. Five. Wow, that's very manageable. Hmm. Yeah, I will definitely check that out. Uh, my favorite TV series for the year is actually something that you recommended. You watched it first, and then I got on board, and that was uh, Save Me. Oh, right. Yeah, that was great. I think I was blown away by that. I've thought more and more about how important the score is to me for enjoying film and TV. And mm. uh, I've already mentioned Station Eleven and uh, the the leftovers for that, but... Save Me is another score. This one's by uh, Dustin O'Halloran and Brian Senti that I've listened to that so much. And it has it makes such a strong impact on the show. Mm. And it's a show with uh, fantastic performances across the board, shocking narrative choices. Yeah. Uh, it's very tough. It, it is tough to watch. Uh, I mean, it's, uh, it's, it's troubling subject matter of uh, like child sex trafficking. 
it's not fun. Yeah, there are some. There are moments. Say, there are moments that are reasonably funny, but in a natural, in natural interaction type way. Yeah, I um, mean, what 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 carries you over the finish line is, I suppose, what's carrying the characters over the finish line is the great rapport between the actors and the characters, and the real sense yeah. of community around the pub uh, feels really yeah. realistic and well done. It does. Uh, you do get a real sense of like this is a real London working class like terror block type neighborhood and a real rough pub <laughs> but mm. uh yeah the only downside of the show i think it's quite hard to get hold of for most people uh it was on it's a sky atlantic production so that's how it's available here in the uk i think it's coming to the peacock mm. streaming service in the u.s but I, I just think it's a lot of people have never heard of it because it was uh, quite it's just quite hard to, hard to get hold of i imagine we'll be getting a series three of that as well that's certainly planned, and season two won some BAFTAs, I remember. So mm. it's gotten some uh, critical acclaim, even if it, even if a lot of people haven't seen it. Lenny James, I've, of course, I've recommended it, it to people. Mm. I've recommended it to people, and they had no idea what I was talking about. Much like when you brought it up to me, I was like, save me. Is that the thing with Dennis Leary as a fireman <laughs> or something? I'm not watching that. Uh, that rescue me. <laughs> rescue me, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Fucking leering. Okay, what was the next category? Next category is your favorite overall film of the year. So just it doesn't have to be specifically for the podcast, but just uh, a favorite right, overall. Uh, so I can interpret this my way, yeah? Yeah, it could just be maybe it was like a... You you saw uh, a a video on someone's mobile phone. <laughs> Maybe it's a pornographic scene from a, a famous website. It could be anything you want. All right, or okay, With uh, a moving image. I've got two answers, really. Okay, so take from this what you will. And I'm also assuming that it's the first time we watched it, right? Yes, but I one yeah, of the, I one, don't want to say like the thing is the best film. <laughs> one of them you haven't seen though. Um, okay, so, that's fine. Adam Curtis regularly categorizes his entire series together as films. He'll just say films. Like, <laughs> this is a film about whatever, even if it's in five parts. Now, this year, his film, Can't Get You Out of My Head, was not, like, it was not released in theaters nor on the television. It was an internet presentation, and it's a series of five films. Uh, I would say that the final film in that series just absolutely floored me. I've seen the whole thing twice this year. So I just want to give Adam Curtis special mention because he is probably my favorite filmmaker and uh if that counts however i know i'm pulling i'm uh, i'm pushing pulling at straws here is that the expression but i don't uh, think so but go ahead yes i don't think it is either uh, clutching maybe clutching at straws yeah that's it okay so i've given it my special mention whatever uh, i'm gonna double down on a film that i went to the cinema to see twice uh which was which the first time i saw with you uh, Denis Villeneuve's Dune. Oh God, Dune. Yeah, indeed. Um, it made me so happy to see a book that I've loved for so long just triumph on the big screen. And by the time I saw it for the second time, it had been announced that there would be a sequel, which is almost a different way to watch it, I have to say, knowing that there will be a sequel. But uh, I do think it's a triumph in every sense. I do think you should watch it again, honestly. Um, we uh, famously disagreed on this, I feel. Um, famously. Uh, but uh, I had such a good time with it. Both times, the design, the score, just how much it belongs on the big screen. In a year where... In a, in an era where there are so, mo- so many things that you could just easily just wait for. But this is a, a cinematic presentation. And um, yeah, it really blew me away. 
I will rewatch it, but I'm going to wait until the sequel slash sequels come out. I'll put it together then, but I don't really want to rewatch it before that. I, I, I'll i be interested in seeing it when it's part of like the whole overarching plot. I do think I was maybe a little harsh on the film. I, I would be interested in, I would be interested in seeing it again and seeing something of that level of ambition and spectacle well it's kind of the reason why i chose my favorite overall film of the year which was uh ridley scott's the last jewel hmm okay still haven't seen it looking forward to it go on and the reason i chose that is just because i think it's something we may never see again okay i think a hundred million dollar cinematic release big historical epic i see what you're saying I just don't think, I just think this is like the last of these films. Unless they can get private funding, if streaming platforms are able, or wherever funding's going to come from, like, who's going to pay $100 million to make a Ridley? I mean, we might not see any more Ridley Scott films, apart from anything. Obviously, mm. he had that House of Gucci, which I may not watch. I've heard mostly bad things about that. But I think The Last Duel, it was interesting using this uh this historic setting to tell a very modern story with modern characters was it was interesting it was different very ambitious and uh yeah i I chose it just because it felt like a really a cinema event that no one went to see yeah and it's part of the reason why this type of thing will never happen again Uh, i wish i'd gone to see it in the cinema i went to see um eternals instead around that time You know, as I don't get many cinema trips, I wish I'd gone to see that. The future of cinema. Yeah, there we go. Um, Okay, what's the next category? Next category is uh, film you think more people should watch. Okay, I've just, (laughs) just through going down through uh, the the podcast's uh, feed. Yeah, same. I did the same. (laughs) Just to to see what, like, I, I, I might come up with from that. I did... I did decide, and this was from last year, even, well, 2020 even, but I just decided it deserves a mention. Uh, more people should see Zardos, I'm going to say that. Just don't be put off, just see <laughs> Why? it. Why? <laughs> it's, it's You're tr- trying to torture people. <laughs> Man, Zardos is fun. Uh, you know, it's interesting. Uh, but no. Who chose Zardos, me or you? Me. And you chose Time, <laughs> time Bandits. <laughs> yeah, okay. Okay, but no. You chose Zardos. Who chose uh, Logan's Run? Me also. Sorry about that. <laughs> uh, that was a... it's very much the Zardoz of the of its time. Yeah, yeah, indeed. And uh, no, the film I chose wasn't one uh, we watched for the podcast. More people should mm-hmm. see the Killing of Two Lovers by Robert McKeown, um, which I ended up like <laughs> when I watched it. I this is how small of a filmmaker he is. When I watched it, I messaged him on Instagram saying I love the film, and he th- <laughs> he, he thanked me. Um, True story. He sent you a Christmas card last week. <laughs> the only person I recognized from it was uh, a character who plays the gay nightclub owner from David Simon's The Deuce. It was a really small Ooh. indie film about like a couple breaking up in um, a small town. They really get the energy of the small town. By the end of the film, I swear to God, you could nearly draw a map of the place because there's so many long shots of them walking between houses and driving around and stuff. I'd really recommend it. More people sh- should see it. So Robert McEwen gets to make more movies. What do you have? Yeah, I think uh, Enemy of the Show, John Spillane, recommended that before Mm. uh, as well. It just, I still haven't got around to it. It looks like such a, I I know it's like a small, intimate 
mm. character piece, but I just I, I will eventually watch it. But God, I got I got torrents of well. In fact, the thing that I'm about to recommend is kind of the exact opposite of that. Oh, in terms of I went for something a bit more schlocky, a bit uh, more of a a kind of. Uh, genre film this is a spanish uh time travel film from oreo paulo mirage oh yeah you were big from, on that from when 2018 you watched it. i i was big on it and i think it's so easy it's so easy to get hold of this was a netflix production so it's on netflix uh it won't change your life but it's a very well made tightly plotted thriller and oreo paulo he uh directed a film which again i still haven't got around to watching and i really want to is the English title of which is The Invisible Guest. I, I, I'm I, sure that I will love that film, but I just still haven't been able to... to, to there's too many things. Yeah. There's too many things to watch. But I would highly recommend Mirage just because, as I say, it's like it's on Netflix. It is, it's, it's solid. It's very, very solid. And I think not many people have seen it or they're put off because it's in Spanish. But you can get English subtitles. Well, I'm going to try and watch that later today, to be honest. I mean, you've convinced me. I should, I'll should. i be one of those people who watches that film. I think you'll appreciate it. You live in Spain. There you go. That's enough. <laughs> we're on to, uh, we're on to uh, the negativity section, right? Yeah. So that was all the positive. And we're, normally, I think, I think in reality, I would probably rather only just talk about the worst films <laughs> and slay everyone and everything. That certainly is my... That's my personality type, is just to, to focus on the negative. But we've done a lot of positive right there. So let, let's get into the fun stuff. We've got worst film overall that you saw over the uh, the course of the year, and then worst week of the podcast, which may be the same thing for you. But for me, I could was able to separate these out into two different choices. I think I'll be able to separate them out. I'll take worst wor- film. Okay, worst film. I mean... I'm going to, this obviously is a subjective thing, but I found Pritzi's Honor fucking painful. (laughs) Yeah. This is John Huston's weird kind of farce thing. Yeah. About, I can't even remember what it's about. It's one of those films with so much. Jack Nicholson's a hitman and then he falls in love with this hit lady and something or other. Yeah, played by Kathleen Turner. That's right, Kathleen uh, Turner Overdrive. And Angelica Houston is in there as well. I mean, I just found Mm. it just messy, overly long, not interesting. Sorry to give it a kicking. It's, (laughs) you know, it's been out so many years ago, but I really, really hated you that week (laughs) as I was watching it. I was like, oh God, fuck you, Andy. (laughs) That did not bother me that much. I found it to be very lightweight. And it was just, that was nominated for Best Picture or yeah, something? Yeah, it was, yeah. It definitely had Oscar nominations that it did not deserve. It was just because of the reputation of the people involved, I yeah. think, and maybe weak opposition it was up against. Uh, yeah, I, Prissy's Honor did not bother me that much. I would certainly not recommend it to anyone, and it was very much of its time and place, and I don't think it holds up at all well. But for me, the worst film was, uh, it wasn't a bad week at all because we watched five films that week. But oh. the worst film for me, without a doubt, is Rambo First Blood Part 2. Oh, uh, yeah, that's pretty terrible. I, f- I found Rambo 2 extremely hard work. In a week of five Rambos, to, g- to have the high <laughs> of the first, of first blood and then to be brought crashing back down to earth 
to to you 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 climb the peak of the mountain early, and then you slide down yeah. into a chasm of despair in film two, and have to slowly build your way back up again. Yeah, it that... was it was tough going to have to even focus on what happened in Rambo two. It really was. Yeah, it's a terrible film. Because say what you want about some of the other films we watched. Um, I guess probably Joanna Man is the one with the worst reputation, but yeah. that has a stronger emotional core than Rambo 2. And it took itself far less seriously. <laughs> well, I love in um, Rambo 2, the second uh, you see the Vietnamese lady who's hot, you're like, ah, you're going to smooch Rambo and then you're going to die. <laughs> yep. and it's exactly what happens. <laughs> That is. But I've never seen it happen so close to the smooching. I think she <laughs> dies like about 30 seconds later. Oh, and they plan to move back to America together and stuff. Yeah. <laughs> but to be fair, I mean, those are tropes that maybe weren't that well established in the in the 80s when that came out. Okay. Maybe they were spoofed more heavily afterwards, but that doesn't, it's not letting Rambo 2 off the hook because it was already, it was panned at the time. So it's not like time has been cruel to the film. It yeah. was a big steaming shite when it was released <laughs> and it was very much it led the way for this like blockbuster you know i think sylvester stallone is partially responsible for the multiple sequel with the same star mm. uh, franchise system that, that got put in place I and mean, he was just seemed to be a big proponent of that in every uh avenue rambo um rambo was a very interesting week because when you finally got to rambo 4 you sort of realized that uh, Sylvester Stallone finally understood the appeal of the films. <laughs> yeah, and even Rambo 5 wasn't that bad. No, no, I, I quite enjoyed okay. Rambo 5. The uh, whole... Yeah, Rambo 4 was certainly a, a more, of a, more of a high point of just seeing people shredded in, in Thailand, being shredded into pieces. Indeed, are we on to uh, Worst Week? Worst Week overall. Okay, um... I think we might agree on this. I, think I didn't want to. I didn't want to name it as worst film just because it's not yeah. in my cinematic lexicon. But Three Idiots was tough going, wasn't it? That's it. Yeah, I I would have potentially put that up there. That was one as well. Where, but it's so beloved, and there were a few moments I had to sit back and go like I, I thought about it, and I thought the songs the songs make up for a bit. They're not songs that I would ever want to sing or hear or have other people like near me listening to or singing <laughs> all is well <laughs> and i would and i would maybe consider like putting some sort of hot steaming iron or implement into my ear holes to to seal them shut so that the sound of the songs would never get in there but by the same token i think it's quite nice that they sang some songs and they looked like they were happy and having a good time so yeah. i can't shit on the film too much but i never want anything to do with it ever again yeah. So that wasn't your worst week. What was your worst week? Well, yeah, wait, I, I will say one more thing about Three Idiots. I take quite a lot of uh, supplements these days. I take things like zinc and I take like a whole bunch of different things. And I'm starting to understand silencers <laughs> problems. <laughs> I've, got, I've got respect for old silencer. Because what was that? He was taking like herbal speed or something. Oh, yeah. Silencer. <laughs> <laughs> oh. I love that you've completely forgotten that film. I'm not going to I'm not going to go into that any further. There'd oh be man, no elaboration. I ju yeah, well, oh, remember at the end like the filament is so long that you start to get on Silencer's side and then in <laughs> yes. the end they're just like 
Uh, oh, what? You've worked really hard all your life and you wanted an investment from me? Well, no, up yours. <laughs> You're going to lose your job and be homeless. Yeah, yeah, you lose uh-huh. the film. It doesn't matter that you have a family. For, <laughs> for, for no real reason, because we had a bit of an argument at, at university. 22 well, years before worst, the film. Go on. What's your worst my week? My worst week, you could probably guess. I'd have to go episode 46, which was Lady Ghostbusters. Oh. I just think for me this is one of the reasons for switching back to the two film format because to just watch that go and talk about that ghostbusters film i just think it was a cynical failed cash grab and it hung a talented cast out to dry yeah and i did not enjoy it at all i think it was a a failure and i think yeah i think i think it was very cynical because i think they they decided like we're gonna fast track this will bring in the biggest female comedy stars and it won't really matter what the script's like or anything. We can just sell it. We'll get some kind of feminist marketing and we'll be able to sell this thing. Yeah. Obviously, the public didn't respond well to it, but I mean, the final product was not very good. And I think even the the, the latest the latest film as well, Ghostbusters Afterlife, proved to me, I, I you still haven't seen that, right? No. I, it proved to me that like, Overall, maybe Ghostbusters should just be left alone. <laughs> maybe, maybe, maybe there isn't much to be done with it. Yeah, well, because it's an idea that was mad that it worked at all. I suppose was the big lesson from the Lady yeah. Ghostbusters week. It was lightning in a bottle, um, and mm-hmm. you, you just they they really pushed to uh, make it work. And you're right, it did. Watching that film felt like I don't know being in the room with a like a known pervert or something like that. Um, <laughs> Because it was just like you, nobody had good intentions with this. Yeah. You know? Anyway. Yeah, it was a rough go, and I will never be watching that again. And uh, yeah, that was it. That was certainly, that was the, the hardest week overall. Well, so I guess that's it for the best of the year. Time to move into our review of Galaxy Quest. In the far reaches of the galaxy. <laughs> A civilization is under siege. We are all that is left. They've searched the universe for a leader. Stay tuned for scenes from next week's Galaxy Quest. Never give up. Never surrender. He will save us. Did you like it? Uh, I think my response to that question would probably have to be this. It's uh? a good enough response for me. I think... I very early on in the film, I was wondering why I'd never watched it. And then after about an hour, I remembered exactly why. And it's because it's a middle of the road family comedy starring Tim Allen. It's more or less exactly why I expected it to be. There's there are hints of the film that it could have been. You can you can see some of the remnants of the of the R rated version, like when uh Sigourney Weaver's going down the corridor with all the crushers. What mm. what is the what what's the line that you can she she mouths fuck, but I can't remember uh, exactly what the Screw line is. this. Yeah, screw this, but she's clearly saying fuck this. I think if they'd stuck to their guns and kept it R-rated, I, I, it would have been a better film. Apparently the way which Sigourney Weaver said that, screw this, was actually in protest of them having to do um ADR over the naughty words and they cut out some beheadings and stuff like that as well. It does have a met a stranger in the Alps feel to it. A stranger in the Alps? It's uh the line from the Big Lebowski that got changed to the for, for the for the edited airplane version. 
This is oh. this is why you don't. This is why you don't meet a stranger in the Alps or whatever. It's like fuck a stranger in the ass. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I got, I got if, that. If, but they changed yeah, that for yeah, the airplane yeah. version. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like the Cohen brothers made the choice to uh, make the lines really, really silly. <laughs> that's quite fun. This is what happens when you meet a stranger in the Alps. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I like that. That's good. So I think Galaxy Quest has a bit of that for me. Like, I can see the seams in terms of studio interference. I mean, they, they went with DreamWorks, and mm. Steven Spielberg had some input, I think, to, to basically water this down. Yeah. And it was successful to an extent. I mean, it was a financial success, more or less. Over the years, it's become quite kind of culty. It's got a big, it's got a big sort of fan base of people that enjoy it. But it's one of those films that, me. like, I almost. I enjoyed it. I've seen Father Ted so many times that it doesn't really matter if I watch it ever again. But one of the things that I still get a buzz out of when watching it is when you're watching it and you can see an Arthur Matthews joke, you can see a Graham Linehan joke, and you can see one that they did together. You can see how it was constructed. And actually, I got a similar buzz from Galaxy Quest because I read about the production before watching it and how it came to being, because I knew what it was about. So the, you know, basically, yeah, the cast of a Star Trek show get called, their show gets mistaken for historical documents and they got to go save the galaxy, blah, blah, blah. And I heard that the film, when first conceived, was kind of conceived as something a little bit more serious. A show like Star Trek would be mistaken by aliens for historical documents and the actors would be made to fight in some thing. And then the guy sold the script and then another guy was hired to rewrite it. And he wrote it from the bottom up or the top down or whatever way you say it and just completely just said from the get-go, oh, this is a comedy. This is totally ridiculous and silly and stuff. And made it a comedy from that. And I think you can sort of see that structure. I think there's like... There's there is the basic structure, uh, like the gags are inserted. You know what I mean? Yeah, it, it does have more of a I don't know, like a action adventure feel to it with comedy sprinkled in. Uh, maybe that's why the comedy doesn't work for me that that well. Also, like uh, I mean, it was it's from nineteen ninety nine. Mm. I think in the in the years that have passed, it's possible that it has just maybe aged quite badly in terms of like a star trek parody was a bit fresher back then there are certain th there's a lot of stuff in it that i felt still worked um i felt uh, i do think i <laughs> i genuinely feel tim allen is like just a really good screen presence i quite like him i'd like to see him in more stuff but i mean whatever he's probably rich enough i mean he's got to be loaded beyond his beyond anyone's wildest dreams that guy um alan, i think he's doing okay alan rickman is also always good um <laughs> yeah I, w I would like to see him in more stuff nowadays would you like to see him in a bathroom because <laughs> yeah. i have i think they, sh they should they should bring him back i don't know why they haven't brought him back yeah i know yeah me neither it's a strange why one. aren't they reanimating people yeah, and I I also thought the alien fellows were really good. Uh, I thought some of the special effects. I, I thought effects, the aliens were like a real highlight. Yeah, I had the. I thought some of the special effects were very well done and have stood the test of time. But ultimately, yeah, I suppose it's it's like you were saying about the last duel. I mean, you just won't see this kind of stuff anymore. And like, it's such. A, it is a really good idea for a, a movie. I do think that to give credit where it's due, it's a re, um, it's a really good punchy script. It feels sort of. More like like a an American cousin of the Cornetto trilogy, maybe. Mm, I, that's high praise. I don't know if I would. 
Oh. Maybe if the cousin was like, uh, had some kind had of a limp. Def- <laughs> or I was thinking a stronger defect. Maybe <laughs> they were dropped on their head as a baby or something. That they were, cousin. They were just obsessed with. And um, they were inbred. And they fancied the female characters from the Sonic the Hedgehog <laughs> cartoons, that kind of thing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you're, I mean, you're right. You're right that this is a film that won't get made again. A $45 million budget with these stars, with these people. I guess, I mean, some cast members were just coming up, but like Sigourney Weaver, Alan Rickman, Tim Allen, mm. they were all very, very, very well known at the time. So, But it did make money, didn't it? It did, yeah. It made around $90 million. So it doubled his budget, which you know, in nineteen ninety nine, that's a that's a, a strong result. That was a big a big win. Yeah, God, how far the industry has come! Like, make less <laughs> than a billion, and you're a fucking loser these days. <laughs> I just thought it was isn't it's it's nice, it's harmless, it's the kind of thing I imagine the people who like it have watched it ten, fifteen times. Yeah, sure. I can imagine people are just obsessed with it. People who maybe grew up with it. Mm. I could imagine that, like, people younger than us, maybe even, like, <clears throat> kind of grew up with it or something. Well, yeah. And it's had a st- strong effect on them. But to well, me, I, I seeing it now, it's it, it's past its sell-by date for me. Well, the example I always give with that kind of thinking is Wayne's World, which I never watched uh, when it came out. I, I must have only watched Wayne's mm-hmm. World for the first time 10 years ago. And I was kind of like, uh... <laughs> <laughs> I mean, whatever, guys, you know, whereas something like Austin Powers, if I turn on now, I'll be laughing again in seconds. Yeah, there's definitely truth to that. But the problem was you watched Wayne's World and not the magnum opus that is Wayne's World 2. Ah, which is Wayne's World 2, the one with the Mrs. Robinson type ending? I thought that was the first one. Oh, okay. In that case, no, no, no. I've only seen the, the, the first, first one. one has like three endings. But maybe the second one had multiple endings as well. No, the second yeah. one has got uh, what's his name, Ralph, Ralph Brown, doing the. Uh, oh, the guy from uh, with Nail and, and I. And then I beat them to death with their own yeah, shoes. Yeah, I, I yeah, I have seen that. I have seen that. So there was me. I had to find a hundred brown M and M. I can't remember that. Yeah, that's Wayne's World too. That bit is good. That's funny. Anyway, uh, is it funnier than Galaxy Quest? Probably. Uh, but Galaxy yes, Quest is me. still occasionally yes. quite funny. Yes. Yes. I, I what's it okay, give me an example of a of a joke or anything that worked. I mean, I like the aliens. I thought everything that the aliens did was was very funny. Like straight off the bat, to me it was like a funny no fielding character. I, as in like no no fielding but funny. <laughs> I thought um Slam, take that no fielding. For example, the part where they're um wandering through the basement area of the ship and they get to the crushers and they discuss that there's no feasible reason for the crushers to exist they're just you know they were in an episode basically obviously to create drama so the aliens created the crushers that made me laugh i just think those meta aspects like again i just feel like that's been done so much now that it might have had more effect back in 1999 but those meta aspects, I was like, yeah, okay, I get it. But I don't know. I just feel like I've seen, I can't, but I can't name what I've seen it in. I can't think off the top of my head, but I just feel like there have been so many meta TV and film properties since then that have broken the fourth wall like that. I thought it was funny that uh, Sigourney Weaver mostly had the lads out for the last 15 minutes. Yeah, I thought that was funny too. <laughs> it was very funny. <laughs> it was hilarious. I thought it was funny that Tim Allen kisses her at the end. Uh, which was a payoff that didn't really have a build-up, in my opinion. 
that's just what you're supposed to do in 1999. Yeah, I suppose, like, yeah. like, obviously, I'm getting in here. Obviously, I'm Tim Allen. Cut to 15 years and Sigourney Weaver's character is being interviewed by Vanity Fair. That was that was fine in 1999. That was all okay. This originally was a Harold Ramis project. That's but, right. Uh, Ramis, Ramis wanted Lady Killer Alec Baldwin for the lead role. <laughs> but, uh, old, old Baldwin turned it down and then Ramis dropped out when Tim Allen was cast uh, but supposedly the, the, the Harold Ramis version was supposed to be more like uh, Spaceballs tonally so I guess it was going to be even more meta even more meta yeah and more more parody than it, than it ended up being maybe it took itself a bit more seriously overall because there's a lot uh, of affection Dean, Dean in there in charge you yeah. know it's like um, Spinal Tap or Hot Fuzz in that regard um because it's kind of like it also has a lot of affection for the thing it's parodying. Clearly, I remember reading an interview with uh, Patrick Stewart where he said the first time he heard about this TV show, he was like, "Red Dwarf, what's that? Are they just these? How dare they? They're like taking the piss out of Star Trek. Hmm. Like that's bang out of order." But when he watched it, he was like, "Oh no, I see. Like they have real reverence. Like they have love for the hmm. uh, for this." original product i guess galaxy quest is is kind of similar in that it definitely does hold star trek in quite high regard i have to say now i'm looking at the poster for it and it's got one of the worst movie posters i've ever seen <laughs> i think a lot of posters of that time period I, I remember when galaxy quest came out that was just the year that i started university so i watched a ton of films because mm. i used to be able to go for like almost nothing and I think Galaxy Quest poster was one that I saw and immediately said, yeah, this is not for me. Because it looks like a kid's film from the poster. I it does, yeah. But it's also yeah, it's, got it's this... Not, it's not a good look. It's also got this speech thing coming out of the ship and it says, are we there yet? Uh, well, that's quality. Yeah, not good. Not good. Okay, we talk about these cast. Yeah, I think so. I think we should get into it. So we had Tim Allen as Jason Naismith, who played Commander Peter Quincy Tagger, the commander of the NSEA Protector and main character of the series. <laughs> yeah, Tim <laughs> Allen. <laughs> oh, what a calling character to have. <laughs> On October 2nd, 1978, Allen was arrested in the Kalamazoo Battle Creek International Airport for possession of over 650 grams of cocaine. Yeah. Uh, what's that in your What's that in your suitcase there, Mr. Allen? Uh, uh, <laughs> but didn't he roll over? He did. He he got a sentence of 3 to 7 years rather than possible life imprisonment because he named uh, the other dealers uh, involved. There's a very funny episode of the Norm Macdonald uh, live podcast with Tim Allen as guest, where just out of nowhere, and they're all just telling jokes and stuff, and <laughs> Norm MacDonald just says, uh, hey, uh, weren't you uh, arrested for possession of nearly a kilogram of cocaine in the 1970s? Allen has clearly never been asked about this. Like, it just goes, yeah, Jesus, bring that up. <laughs> and then, I like uh, that Norm MacDonald guy. They should bring him back and put him in more stuff. Yes, they should. Him and Alan Rickman together. Norm MacDonald, for the next 10 minutes of the episode, proceeds to do... Uh, impressions of what guys might have been like to Tim Allen in prison. Just going, uh, <laughs> people ever give you a nickname like uh, Mr. Candyman? They ever say, hey, uh, Mr. Candyman, you got a whole lot of jokes, but you ain't got a lot of coke. <laughs> and that's just a uh, norm for the next 10 minutes. Good old norm. Mm. Friend of the show, Norm McDonald. Friend of the show. Supporter of the show, <laughs> Norm McDonald. 
<laughs> speak to him constantly about episodes. So yeah, he's he passes on his best wishes and happy new year to us all. Yeah, after his release, Alan returned to working as a as as a, a stand up comic, a road comic touring around the U.S. Have you heard any of his material? Yes, uh, bits and pieces, not much. Are you are you a fan? He was okay. Yeah, he's very similar to you, I think. As a comedian, I, I listened to some of it. Yeah, some of his material is quite similar to things I've heard you say on stage. Like what? Well, here's an example. Men are pigs, right, women? Really, really, just too damn bad we own everything, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I like that. <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. It's kind of weird that like home improvement and that and everything of that time period just it tapped into into like a big group of men just going yeah (laughs) like that was the (laughs) that was the energy in the room (laughs) yeah absolutely correct is is there anyone who does that now i can't think of anyone who does that kind of like (laughs) yeah who's does who does like men versus women like joe rogan dice or someone yeah rogan maybe i guess it's like some kind of still fucking bit i guess that's the equivalent Oh God! I watched yeah, that Rogan Stu fucking video off. there the other day again. That's hilarious. That, <laughs> that is. It's worth watching every so often. <laughs> oh my God! It's so funny. The funny, like, I mean, there's loads of funny, exaggerated Rogan stool fucking in it. But the funniest part of it is when he's making a case for stool fucking to he Jeff has Garland. To justify his own skull. Oh fucking, my God! Yeah. It's so funny. Anyway. Anyway, I think we've talked about that a lot. Right, moving on, we got Sigourney Weaver as Gwen DeMarco, who played Lieutenant Tony Madison, the ship's communications officer, and the only officer aboard who can give orders to the ship's computer. Susan Alexandra Weaver was born in New York City on October 8th, 1949. At the age of 14, Weaver began using the name Sigourney, taking it from a minor character in... Um, I don't know, like one of those shows about minors? That's correct. From a minor character, exactly, yeah. working in a coal mine. From the coal miner's daughter. Ah, right. No, Loretta Lynn. <laughs> no, it's uh, a minor character from The Great Gatsby. Something I have never read, watched, listened to, interacted with in any format. You should definitely read it. It's really short. I'm not going to well. do that. Can I just watch the one with Leonardo DiCaprio? No, and don't. Spider Man. Because you can't. Like, if you if, look, you know, things. if you can't see it in 3D, just don't. That's that's my rule. Fine. Sigourney Weaver was around 30 when the original Alien film was released, meaning that she was about 50 when Galaxy Quest came out. No comment. No comment, sir. But there's some kind of jiggery-pokery going on there. (laughs) Because that ain't right. Uh, This is her second podcast appearance after... Uh, The Year of Living Dangerously. That That was a solid week as well. It was, yeah. That and the Mosquito Coast. Yeah. That's a good, nice little double bill. Moving on, we had Alan Rickman. Your friend Alan Rickman is Alexander Dane, who played Dr. Lazarus, the ship's science officer and a member of the Maktar, an yes. alien species known for their super intelligent and super intelligence and psionic powers. What's psionic? I don't know. Some <laughs> bullshit. He's made it up for this film. None of this is real. What's your Rickman trivia? Rickman was born with a tight jaw which re- uh, resulted in the deep, languid tone of voice for which he would become famous. Oh, I just thought he was a prick. <laughs> no, he, he had a tight jaw. <laughs> I just thought he was a villain. <laughs> a bad person. <laughs> no, I have a very tight jaw. I can't really do it. But two researchers, a linguist and a sound engineer, found that the perfect male voice is a combination of Alan Rickman and Jeremy Irons' voices. Really? Yeah. 
That's the perfect voice is uh, Jeremy Rickman or Alan Irons. I mean, you've got something along those lines, Andy, I would say. I've got a very tight jaw. I, I consider myself more Jeremy Irons than Alan Rick manager. Fairy Muff. Yeah, I don't know if I, I... I maybe don't have the sonorous, languid voice. You do okay. I, just, I, I, I need to. I need to. I need to practice. Your more. most Alan Rickman comes out when um, you're thinking about something and you go like that. <laughs> <laughs> Monk is in this. Monk is next. <laughs> <laughs> Monk played. Monk played Fred Kwan, who, who played. Wait, Monk played Fred Kwan, who played Tech Sergeant Chen. Wait, I, wait, I can, I can actually go another level. Tony Shalhoub played Monk, who played Fred Kwan, who played Tech Sergeant Chen, the ship's chief engineer. You know the thing is, I've never seen one episode of Monk. It's just so seared <laughs> into popular neither. culture that I know him as Monk. I, I think I watched about ten minutes once, and I said, "He's a detective man, right?" He, and he's got some kind of Asperger's or something. He's got something. He's and, got something and that wasn't on. for you? No, I, want, I like my detectives normal and my Asperger's Asperger's. I keep them separate. <laughs> no ass in my burgers. No, please. I like my detectives alcoholics. Uh, that's, that's where I'll, I'll, I'll take an alcoholic detective, please. <laughs> Monk's performance is, is based on friend of the show and Thai hotel wardrobe belt wanker David Carradine. <laughs> <laughs> who allegedly frequently acted while under the influence of drugs in the show Kung Fu. Yeah, there we go. So he's supposed to be on drugs in this. It doesn't I never really come got across. that at all. It's just, he's just weird. I, like, there's a part at the end where it turns out he's an alien in disguise, and I, for a second, went, oh, he was an alien in disguise. That's why he's been so weird. <laughs> turns He was made of chimps. Oh. So Simpsons yeah, reference. Yeah, yeah, right yes, 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 yes. There we go. Uh, yeah, I, I, I guess he's supposed to be like a sort of SoCal surfer hippie vibe i just thought he was like slow yeah it was odd i think it's mainly down to his casting yeah well originally he auditioned for sam rockwell's role old sammy rocks uh, played guy fliegman the cast handler at conventions who also played a red shirt in a single episode simply referred to as crewman number six in the revival at the end of the film he gains a part as security chief rock ingersoll at high school sam rockwell uh, was in the same improv troupe as m- comedians Margaret Cho and Aisha Tyler. Nice. That's it for your Sam Rockwell trivia. That's enough. We, talk- we talked about him before. Mm-hmm. He is who he is. Did you ever watch that YouTube video link I sent of the Sundance thing? No, I haven't watched it, where Sam Rockwell no. was an well, it's asshole. It's in the show notes. Yeah, it's in the show notes of the previous episodes. I'll check that out. Whichever episode that was. What was the Sam Rockwell? What film was he? Oh, yeah, Magic Man. Magic it's in Man, the yes. show notes of Magic Man. Next up was Daryl Mitchell as Tommy Weber, who played Lieutenant Laredo, a precocious child pilot. Daryl Mitchell is the the adult version of him. I was not familiar with Daryl Mitchell at all, and I was wondering why I'd never heard of him. And the reason is that on November 10th, 2001, Mitchell was paralyzed from the waist down after a motorcycle crash in South Carolina. Oi. Uh, He woke up five days later in the hospital, and he got full support. From his family and friends, including Denzel Washington and Chris Tucker, to continue his career. So he's still in a wheelchair. Mm, Yeah, he's in a wheelchair, so his roles and appearances have been pretty limited. And he also spends a lot of time as an activist for actors with disabilities. He's in Fear the Walking Dead. Yeah. It's weird to see someone like that going back to 2001 and just to see 
this reasonably major role in a mm. film and just go like, who is this guy? Why have I never heard of him before? Yeah. It's kind of a strange experience. And then usually there's like some horrible tragedy has befallen them. Like a motorcycle accident. Although we don't just know if like it that. was a tragedy. <laughs> I don't think he had a good time overall, probably. No. I don't want to speak for the man, but I think it might have been quite tough. Anyway, next up was Enrico Colantoni as Mathazar, the leader of the Thermians. I thought he was, was great. the best person in this film, the yeah. best cast member. All of his choices, uh, apparently he was the first alien cast, and then they built the rest of the performances around what he brought to the table. Oh my God. And I've just remembered, there was something from my what I've been watching this week, which I forgot to mention, which... I'm going to, because he's in it, I'm just going to have to give a very quick shout out and I might even... He's in two things you watched for... That's right. He's in, well, he's in Station Eleven, He's of in course. Station Eleven. But mm-hmm. I also watched this week A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood, the Mr. Rogers film with t- oh. Tom Hanks. Uh, yeah. uh, and uh, wow, I loved it. It was great. I cried a bunch. Oh, nice. Let's move on. <laughs> well, I just want to give uh, Colin Tony a shout out for his important roles on two of my favorite sci-fi TV shows and Station Eleven added to the list. He's in all the stuff I love. He was on Person of Interest as crime boss Carl Elias and on Travelers as Vincent Ingram, <laughs> a.k.a. Traveler 001. I've mentioned Travelers to you before. <laughs> and I don't remember selling it. point. The big selling point is it's got Will, <laughs> Will off of Will and Grace. Ah, nice. <laughs> You know it's a good sci-fi show when it's got Will off of Will and Grace on <laughs> Yes, you do. <laughs> this, this, like, I genuinely like Travelers. I really liked it. It was a three-series, a three-season show. Uh, I think it was it was made by some sci-fi, sci-fi channel, maybe, and then it moved to Netflix. And Netflix made, I think, maybe one season and then canceled it. And uh, it's worth watching. I, if you like, if you're, I, I, we mentioned, but I've mentioned many times before, but time travel is one of my favorite genres. And mm. this is quite good. The, the character Vincent Ingram travels back to September the 11th, 2001. Oh, what happened then? So you could, you get, I don't know, some, something, a bird strike or something. But 9-11 was Nothing a national much. tragedy. That's correct. Like falling off of a motorbike. Indeed. Full circle. I got nothing. <laughs> I got nothing to say about Missy Pyle, who played Laliari. Me Lally neither. Ari, a Thermian and love interest for Fred. I, I mean, it's a very terrible good. name. She's fine. What the? Which one? Her real name or the character name? Missy Pyle. <laughs> yeah, it's her real name. Unfortunately, yeah. I know. Yeah, it's not great, is it? If I can change that. Yeah, that's f- uh, fair enough. I remember her I from... she was fine. I she was very good. ...things here and there. She's been in some some things here and there, which are, in which I've seen her now. The final two cast members to mention were both making their feature film debuts. One, uh, Justin Long as Brandon, a dedicated fan of Galaxy Quest, and also Rain Wilson as Lank, a Thermian. Good old Rain Wilson. Good old Rainy Wilsons. Well, first of all, Justin Long... During an episode of the podcast Armchair Expert with Dax Shepard, that's a rival podcast to this, long revealed that he was the victim of a drugging and abduction during the filming of Youth and Revolt while in Michigan. According to Long, after an evening of drinking, he left with several local individuals who offered him marijuana, but he believes that it was actually PCP. And they just drove him around and he kept asking to be taken to his hotel and they said no. (laughs) <laughs> repeatedly so then eventually he jumped out of the car and uh, and injured himself this and, uh, sounds terrifying nerve damage to me 
It's not very good, is it? No, um, particular like I, I've just in my travels around America, I have persistently found small town America to be a scary place. Uh, so this is just this. This is just nightmare fodder for me. That that story. That's exactly the kind of thing that I was always afraid of would happen to me. That well, when someone offers you some kind of marijuana's, just say no, kids. Exactly. That's it. You won't get PCP'd up. Rain Wilson, from age three to five, Wilson grew up with his father and stepmother in Nicaragua. Wilson and his family are members of the Baha'i faith. Are you familiar with Baha'i? Wilson has a has a uh, a podcast about it called the Baha'i Blogcast, which uh, sponsors call it Frendo. About what? About being Baha'i. There's a Baha'i podcast? Baha- oh, yes, this is his odd religion. Baha'i Five. I mean, when That's I say odd, I, I mean it. just not Christianity, of course. <laughs> exactly. It's, yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. it's unorthodox because it's not Christianity. But it's correct. like one of those cocktail religions, like the Rizazinta, isn't it? It is, but it's uh, surprisingly low on cocktails. It's uh, you're not allowed to drink, uh, and I think homosexuality is outlawed. I think as as is premarital sex. It's actually, f- uh, at least in the Middle East where it's practiced, it's quite strict. Maybe I don't, I'm not sure what Rain Wilson's version is like. I mean, when I you look it's like Rain Wilson, more like the Office. When you look like when you look like Rain Wilson, you you are bound to be searching for re- you know reasons to not have sex. So, you know, you can put it on uh, yourself as opposed to other people. <laughs> Shots fired. <laughs> uh, that's, take that, Rain Wilson. You've done nothing wrong. <laughs> but we're going to... We slammed you. <laughs> I mean, fa- I'm that. sorry, Rain Wilson. I actually really like you in a lot of things, if you're listening. Particularly uh, the listening. James Gunn film, Super. Yeah, he's good in that. <clears throat> he's good in the Baha'i blogcast. It's my favorite Baha'i podcast. Of all the Baha'i podcasts I listen to, that's the best one. Yeah, I'm going to drop all my Baha'i podcasts except for that one and just focus on it. I think we should. So I think that wraps up the cast. Are you ready to hear about the plot? Let's do plot. As quickly as possible, I say. Yes. Because I don't have my... Should we do the Wikipedia or would you... How about we just go through the plot ourselves? As we remember it. Yeah, as we remember it. Okay. So I remember nothing. I, I I have the I have the I've got the the Wikipedia synopsis in front of me. No, well, let's, let's see uh, if you can. Yeah, let's see if we can remember. Fuck it, let's put that away. I don't need to see any more of that. Let's okay, see what we can do. So, and I'm not. Gonna, How does it start? <laughs> okay, so they're at a convention for their Galaxy Quest show. Oh um, yeah, and all, there's all these nerds that do. You know, they look like real nerds. To be fair, um, that it, has that has the vibe of like chasing Amy or something. Yes, actually. It, good it feels show. very Kevin Smithy. Or like uh, a, a comedy show in Barcelona. That kind of thing. <laughs> <laughs> Shots fired again. Yeah, and then all the cast members, except for Tim Allen, are waiting backstage because he's late. Uh, <laughs> that was perfectly timed. He's off having banter because, uh, you know, he was an egomaniac like uh, William Shatner was apparently back in the Star Trek days. Um so presumably that's based so on that. Is is that just yeah, you think that's just like directly making yeah. fun of William Shatner? For sure, yeah, because he, apparently there was a bit of resentment between William Shatner and the other cast members because he would just take all the good lines and plot points and stuff like that. Cuz you know, I mean, it, which was fine back then in his defense. Anyway, some of the people at the convention are just, you know, really weird, and it turns out that they're actually aliens led by they're Thermians led by uh, Mathazar 
uh, who's uh, the guy from Station Eleven. Yeah. I'm, not, I'm not doing well with remembering Enrico names right Colantoni. now. That's no, it. that's good. You, well, hey, you said the fact that you remember Mathazar is impressive to me. Nice. I'm happy for that. Okay, so then basically they go, they go their separate ways. They're kind of not impressed with Tim Allen's behavior. Alan Rickman particularly who's uh, not impressed. But then Tim Allen goes, oh yeah, Tim Allen overhears Tim some, Allen goes home. Well, he overhears some mean guys in the bathroom saying mean stuff about him. <laughs> yes. Uh, why do like, they have to convince him then? That's what I would say. <laughs> but anyway. That's like that Simpsons thing of like, why did they Why did they come to our to our concert just to boo us? <laughs> just to throw tomatoes. It's <laughs> uh, <laughs> basically that. Um, I would do that. I, I, I've been to stuff I don't like, I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> then what happens... Oh, hold on. I'm he goes home. He lives. He goes home. He lives in like some kind of Troy McClure style house on the yes, hill. Definitely. He looks like he should be sleeping with the fishes. And then he drinks a bunch in his underpants. Yeah. yeah. And uh, then the Thermians show up and they're like, hey. He has when... a raging hangover. Yes. And then they put him into a limo when they give him a Coca Cola. There's a funny gag where the lady's after translator he's, after isn't after he showed his arse. Yes, he wishes. Yeah, he's shown his arse a few times. Get a get a bit of Alan arse in there. To them. And then the lady alien hasn't got her translator on, so she goes, Arr! which is quite nah, funny. Nah. Um, I think those are maybe some of the strongest gags is like or or parts that work quite well for me are when you get to hear the aliens' real voices yeah, and yeah. when they flicker to their real form. Yeah, no, no, it is. It's interesting. Very yeah, Douglas Adams. Yeah. Um definitely. Then uh, he gets uh, buggered off to the other side of the galaxy, but he doesn't realize it at the time. Uh, he thinks he's in some sort of assimilation where he has to trash talk this green alien and he shoots a bunch of stuff at him and essentially it seems like he's won. And then uh, he gets shot back to Earth, at which point he realizes it's all real. What does he do at that point? Does he go and he goes and hangs out with his friends? Uh, well, he didn't have friends, so... He well, go- I mean, his castmates. Well, not, not hangs out with them. He runs back to them, and he has this communication device. And then he bumps into Justin Long, who yeah. he was mean to. And um, he he switches communication device with him, having spiked Justin Long's oh. communication device with PCP. And then um, yeah. runs... And fentanyl. Uh, he, then he runs off, and he tells the guys, Guys, it's all real. It's all real. And they're like, shut up. But then the Thermians come along. Why does he do that? Why does he go and tell the, his castmates that it's real? Um, it just to, it just, is he telling them because he wants them to go with him back there? Yeah, I think so. So even straight away, he's like getting back like, hey, you should... Because then, the oh, the Thermians turn up and say like, hey, that the guy that you... The big evil green guy who's quite a good pu- looking puppet mm. that, that you fired on. Saris. He's not dead. And he, Saris, there you go. Sam Harris. He's still alive. Sam Harris. <laughs> Sam Harris is still out there. He's meditating. <laughs> he's using the power of mindfulness to attack us and he's not dead. So come and save us. From yeah. Islam, from space Islam. <laughs> <laughs> that's full. That's full. Saris there. <laughs> so, <laughs> Saris is actually a member of the Baha'i faith. Oi, and the Thermians are um, Wahhabi uh, Islamists. Yes. <laughs> yes. Uh, anyway, so then all the boys get transported across the galaxy in a weird water blob thing where they literally fly through space so you know that proves which is a fairly dodgy 
that's probably the one of the dodgiest visual effects. Yes, is that it's not good. Blobby stuff. It's not good, no. Um, and then anyway, it turns out that Sam Harris is back on the warpath. He's not been <laughs> completely defeated, and he's going to really kick some ass out of them. So then, hold on, they get so he, yeah, yeah, yeah. He 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 fires on them, and mm. it okay, damages the ship's power source, which is ah uh, yes, a severe thing, sphere. Yeah, beryllium sphere. So they have to go down to this deserty mining type planet. I really enjoyed this sequence because it's like an episode of Star Trek. Sphere, which just happens to be sitting there. Uh, Yeah, it's got like Star Trek, something like Firefly or Pitch Black, but without the danger, really. Mm. Uh, But then the the cuddly aliens that are in the mine turn out to be ferocious uh, flesh eating yokies, and then yeah. They the the boys get the sphere just in time, but uh, Tim Allen is left behind, and he has to, the the children childlike monster aliens try to feed him to a rock thing, which is actually really good special effects. I mean, I presume that one of the softwares they had down back then, like they had the coding down for like rock textures, because it does look really good. Yeah, and all the time this music is playing, and this is a soundtrack <laughs> during the fight. Oh. And he's he's in the middle of this fight, and uh, there's like a fence around next to the fighting area, mm. and there's just a guy's head. You can just see the top of the guy's head over the fence that he talks to this guy Wilson. That's full home. Ah, yeah, yeah, that's there, a, that's that is some <laughs> nice Chris. I had to I had to bail on the reference because I was like, is this too much? <laughs> and also, Pamela Anderson is there before she got breast implants. <laughs> oh, really? Hmm. Okay, so then they get back, they have their sphere thing, and then they're going to get back on the road and fight Sam Harris again. But at the same time, they don't know diddly about the ship and how it works and stuff, so they have to contact Justin Long to help them out. And at the same time, so Sam Harris is after this thing called Omega-13, which is a kind of... It could either end the universe or turn back time 13 seconds. Yeah. Exactly. Yes, and there, there, it might come into play later on in the story. I enjoyed that information because near the end of the movie, it turned me into a Galaxy Quest fan because it it, it made me right. go <gasps> the Omega Three advi- device, Omega Thirteen device. Anyway, yeah. So then they get back on board, but Sam Harris has programmed the ship to self destruct. Uh, around this time, also Monk starts getting off with one of the squid aliens. Yeah, he's well into that. He doesn't care that she's like a weird sort of i don't know blob monster no he's all good with that he's he likes that yes and then the thermians are all dying like in a gas chamber kind of a thing it's some disturbing imagery there (laughs) i think it's that like air is escaping right something like that but yeah uh, (laughs) yeah air is sam harris told them i like that it's a gas chamber yeah i think sam harris told them he was going to take them all in for a shower but then uh. (laughs) yes maybe a space shower (laughs) anyway then uh around this time tim allen and sigourney weaver have to go off and get the something or other with the thing yeah yeah some uh, some other bit some other bit of tech uh, Alan Rickman turns out to be a warrior hero because one of the Thermians gets killed. Uh, a Thermian who was a big fan of his also. Yeah, because that's right. The Thermians love all these boys. They think they're brilliant. Oh, also around that time... Yeah, that time, was weird, that. There was Sam like Harris, one Thermian who really likes Alan Rickman for some reason. And Sam Harris uh, immediately spots them for charlatans when he watches the video. He's like, oh my God, these fucking idiots. They think <laughs> they think you're real. And then Tim Allen yeah, has yeah, to confess yeah. to... to uh, 
to um, Malthazar, Malthazar, that they're not Malthazar, real. Malthazar, yeah. But Malthazar in the yeah, end so sees it as a double Saris bluff. Un- Saris understands the concept of actors and like putting on a play or a show, but the Thermians have no idea of that, so they believed that everything was a historical document, as they said. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They, th- they don't know about lying. Yeah, and they also mentioned that uh, Sam Harris frequently does this. He says one thing and then just doesn't do it. (laughs) That stuff works. That's quite funny. They're they're so naive that they don't understand lying. Oh, yeah, they drag uh, the ship through a magnetic minefield that has been conveniently set up earlier in the film, and then they destroy Sam Harris's ship that way. But then, and they're all headed back towards Earth, but then uh, Monk comes on the bridge. But it's not Monk, it's Sam Harris. And he starts going on a murder rampage, at which point Tim Allen uses the Omega-13 device, uh, which uh, puts them back exactly in time exactly 13 seconds. And then they defeat uh, Cyrus, and then they crash land into the convention, and he smooches Sigourney Weaver, and they bring back Galaxy Quest. That crash, the crash scene where they crash into the convention building is... Sp- I-, I wonder if post-2001, if that would still look the same. It's pretty, I don't know, it's pretty hardcore yeah, for this nearly sort of family drama. Um, yeah, I just, I think it was kind of shocking in a way. Uh, yeah, apparently it was um, more gory uh, in, the ex- in the R-rated version, like in the script. As I in. don't know if I need to see that gore. I just think even more adult themes of like swearing and mm. just a bit more, I don't know. Would it, would they have, I don't know if it would work with more sort of sexy content content i don't think it's with that sexy content <laughs> sexy content well they do have a good like because it is sexy it, it is funny the way sigourney weaver's character gets ripped in exactly the position that she she's got the lads out even though they were augmented lads i understand yeah and she was as we mentioned already around 50 respect yes respect apparently she would uh wear her augmented boobies back to the hotel room and look at herself in the mirror which is also which is also something uh, like mark Wahlberg says he got to keep the um prosthetic penis from boogie nights and sometimes just wears it he could have stopped 9-11 if he was wearing that yeah he'd been on the plane and he was wearing that fake penis (laughs) just did an airplane toilet going you are a superstar (laughs) no question he would have stopped it all right well so won't be watching this again or talking about it no, ever again <laughs> no I, I don't i'm we've paid this way too much mind as far as i'm concerned Agreed. i have nothing more to i, I just uh, uh? it's of its <laughs> yeah final uh? final word on this film is very this is it uh? that's it nothing else to there we say. go we we're done all. all right what's for the double bill toss ombre so we are going to be going back to the old format of toss picks. We have both chosen films. There's no more criteria, none of those shenanigans anymore. We can just choose whatever film we want. So I decided to opt for the 1984 adaptation of 1984, starring 1,984 cast members. It's 1,984 minutes long. Excellent. 1984. I'm looking forward to it. I chose 2019's neo-noir period crime film, Motherless Brooklyn, written, produced, and directed by Edward Norton, who also stars. Starring as uh, the lead character, Neil Noir. That's right, Neil Noir. <laughs> I, I, I chose this Neil Noir 
thriller. I, I don't know if you're familiar with his work. I, I really like Neil Noir's work. You got I a have coin not on seen Motherless Brooklyn. I think it's your turn, but I can get a coin if you want. Okay, I have a coin, and it is a British twenty pence stained with the blood of Irish Republicans. And your two options are the Queen's head still attached to her body, mm-hmm. or what looks like a lion's arse. Uh, I think we could call this heads or tails. <laughs> we could call this heads or tails. I'll go. I'll go heads. Uh, okay. His heads. Yes. <laughs> awesome. So we're going to be watching Motherless Brooklyn, which is a film that I have. Uh, I listened to a lot of Edward Norton's podcast uh, appearances when it came out. Yeah, me too. I just I don't know why I never watched it. Yeah, I remember being very excited about it and never getting around to yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> He was planning to make it for about 20 years as well. I remember when it was on his IMDb upcoming projects in like 2002. So tell me what I could have won to go alongside losing film 1984. I would have gone with the director's cut of George Lucas's first feature film, THX 1138. I've never seen that. I'm quite happy in a way that we're not doing that double bill. I don't know. It just feels quite miserable hyper grim yeah hard going it's just hard going so i've not seen either of those films i'll put 1984 off for a while and thx can can stay away as well well as a companion film to motherless brooklyn i have chosen the 2018 film under the silver lake ah by the it follows guy the it follows guy is his name david robert it follows mitchell nice yeah, I've been meaning this to get around name. to this. It's had it, it's one of those films that I've heard mixed reviews of, but whenever I hear what it's about, I'm like, nah, that's totally up my street. I'm going to eat that up. Um, so uh, happy new year. Happy new year. We'll see you next time for Motherless Brooklyn and Under the Silver Lake. Up yours. Stop. Up yours. Strangers I